VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Wednesday, September the 21st. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's the producer of the show, don't you know? So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air to talk about whatever you want to talk about is 273-5211, or elsewhere it's toll-free long distance, one 590 vocm which is 86 26. Well, boy, fall is really in the air. Kind of a chilly night in the bunk. Actually got up in the middle of the night to close the window. So it was a bit chilly and, of course, frosty this morning, too. Look out the back window at the park behind, and it was pretty much covered in a light layer of frost. So I guess here we go. Mowed the grass for the last time over the weekend. Well, not really grass. I guess it's a combination of moss and weeds. But hopefully that's the last time you have to do that. And whether it be in preparation for the storm and, you know, the target, it's hard to say where it's going to hit. Nobody knows until it actually happens come Friday. But on the southwest coast of the northern peninsula, hopefully folks are able to do all the preparation work whether it be the municipalities or people themselves. Hopefully it's not the mean hurricane category four that we see leaving destruction in its wake, especially the, uh, the visuals coming from Puerto Rico, just unbelievable. So hopefully it moves off to just blow by us, but hopefully it's not too, too bad. But, you know, people will be putting their gardens to winter sleep and the lawn furniture and what have you, but here we are in the throes of beautiful fall so far. So, you know, winding down the baseball season, I follow the ball, as you know, but last night Aaron Judge, New York Yankee slugger, hit his 60th home run of the year. So just one shy of the record, the New York Yankee record, of course, held by Roger Maris, his 61 in 1961, inevitably going to hit it. So that's 60. They have 15 games remaining. Aaron Judge is a monster of a man. He's six foot seven, 282 pounds. When he's swinging the bat, it looks like he's swinging around a toothpick. He's the largest uh, position player of all time. Now, there's been huge pitchers, you know, like Randy Johnson comes to mind, six foot ten, but six seven, 282, and can move too. It's just amazing the athleticism that that guy has on full display. And Raleigh Mercer, he was at the rookie camp for the Montreal Canadiens. He's been invited to the big camp. So that's good news for Raleigh. Obviously, he played pretty well. They liked what they saw. And he's going to be moving on to the next stage in the Montreal Canadiens full-on training camp. That's exciting stuff for him. And congratulations and welcome back to the Outer Cove, Mari- uh, pardon me, Outer Cove Marines. They're a pretty legendary senior hockey club in this neck of the woods. They haven't been icing a team for over 20 years anyway. So they've struck up a partnership with the Ron Cadigan Foundation. So congratulations to the Cadigan boys to get this back on the go. So the Cadigan Foundation to ensure that kids who want to play get to play. And they also have a bunch of awareness campaigns for persons living with re, or pardon me, degenerative diseases like their father Ron did. He was the captain in Otter Cove, won a bunch of championships. His number 10 is uh, flying in the rafters at the Jack Burner arena i was pleased to be involved in that particular ceremony so good luck to and they've struck a partnership with, with wexford estate so they're the wexford estates outer cove marines they're going to be playing their home games down at the jack on friday nights puck drops at 725 i'm led to believe so congratulations to all involved in getting outer cove back on the ice I want to say congratulations to the newly named inductees to the Sport NL Hall of Fame. They haven't put in a class in a couple of years, so there's two different groups here that will be inducted in their upcoming event. So the 2021 inductees, Jackie Barrett. 
Beauty, Jackie Barrett. He's in the athlete category, of course, power lifter and five pin bowling. Dave Buck Buckingham in the athlete builder category, baseball and hockey. Zane Forbes, talk about a monster of a man. Zane Forbes in the athlete category, of course, he was a top notch rower, softball player, baseball player, and most notably a hockey player. Blair Langley, good for Blair, a terrific goaltender, athlete, softball, and of course, hockey. Wolf Stender, he's in the builder category in track and field. That's the 2021 class. 2022, Brian Brocklehurst, fabulous. Athlete category in Ducktee, softball, hockey, baseball. Darren Colburn, what a beauty. One of the very finest athletes the province has ever produced is Darren Colburn. He's in the athlete category as well. Of course, baseball and hockey. Sean Gulliver, oh man, I mean... There was decades where if you went to the ballpark at St. Pat's, there was Sean Gulliver. Sean Gulliver in the athlete and builder category, baseball, of course. Mike Hollard, athlete in soccer. And Pat Parfrey in the builder category in rugby. Congratulations to all. That's pretty cool. All right, let's keep going. So if you're looking for something to stimulate the senses and get away from some of the doldrums, Circus Fest kicks off today here in the city of St. John's. They're going to have a variety of events, whether it be at the Arts and Culture Center, out in Bannerman Park, and at the LSPU Hall. So they bring in performers from across Canada and Europe. They pick a country to focus on each year, and this year the focus is on Germany. So it's always cool for the circus performers. It's not the Barnum and Bailey Circus where, you know, the elephants and the tigers and the lions and the like. These are circus performers. And it's a pretty cool stuff, including performers from this province for sure. So if you're interested, you can buy tickets online. I think there's a story on our site at VOCM.com. So they refer to a couple of the unique acts like the Iron Jaw. Wonder what that is. The Iron Jaw. Sounds pretty good. And the hair hanging acrobatics, of course, that always is a sight to behold, as they say. All right, some other interesting news. Apparently, there's been a memorandum of understanding signed between this province and the country of Ireland. And this is to establish the first transboundary UNESCO World Heritage Site. Of course, we're lucky in this province to have so many of them. We'll get to what they are. So this is working towards having a transatlantic cable ensemble. So it's to commemorate the cable linking between Valencia and Ireland and Heart's Content. Of course, the cable laid in uh, 1866 and changed communications forever. So that's terrific stuff. But just think about the offerings we have in this province. No wonder tourists are clamoring to get here. Now, if it was only a bit easier to get here and some direct flights wouldn't be uh, too bad at all. So whether it be the tablelands and Grossmore, just outstanding. The Lance Meadows historic site, of course. The Red Bay National Whaling Heritage Site. And then you got the mistaken point, of course, is there. And the Discovery Geopark, a new one on the Bonavista Peninsula. And hoping to add the Transatlantic Cable Ensemble to the UNESCO World Heritage Site designation. I like that one. All right. So there's been lots of controversy and debate about not only pandemic supports offered by the federal and provincial governments, but also some of the restrictions and the mandates that have been put forward. We all know the stories. The travel border issues are set to expire on the 30th of September, and they probably should have gone away by now. So whether it be random testing, which for some is a real nuisance, the mandatory isolation or quarantine for the unvaccinated traveler. Look, we can talk about those things till the cows come home. But the reality, and you know, sometimes when you have a personal experience, it helps, uh, helps me, at least, to better understand what's going on. I've got the two shots in the primary series and one booster. I went on a holiday with my wife. I came back, and a few days later, I tested positive. So we know that I can contract it. Now, hopefully the vaccine kept me from being very ill, but if I can get it and an unvaccinated person can get it, the hope would be the honor system, wouldn't it be? Because we don't even know if people abide by the required 14-day self-isolation. 
But if we have an opportunity to contract it, then playing it safe and being reasonable and having some respect for your, your family members and your friends and the community at large is probably the only way to go anyway. So we can talk about that. But there are still people going really hard on the Arrive Can app. You know, it simply just replicated what was a passport uh, document and a return to the country document where you made all your declarations, what have you. The only thing on the app that's different from the paper that we used to fill out and have to bum a pen for is vaccination status. And believe it or not, the country is allowed to ask you that question. But have you used it and actually had a big problem with it? I know some people, maybe it's just part of the the mindset of just disliking or hating or loathing the government. And that's fine, too. I mean, it's up to you. But is it really causing the snarls that people say it is? I've used it. It was really nothing to it. And, you know, people talk about being tracked and digital record. When we just used our passport and was scanned and we filled out our declaration form, it all eventually got digitized and the government kept it. They know where you went based on the stamp in your passport and the declaration as to why you went, whether it be business or pleasure, and when you returned home, what you brought. They know all these things. So I'm not really, I'm not really clearly understanding what the Arrive Can app issue is because it doesn't follow you around. It doesn't know any more about you than the old paper declaration and a scan of your passport. So that one continues to confuse me. But if you want me to fill me in on your concerns with it, we're happy to take that call as well. Good for the folks, uh, the elected officials and managers at the City of Mount Pearl and the members of the QP Local, and I think really importantly, the residents of the city of Mount Pearl. So they're going back to work. The deal has been ratified by the members. Now they're working on a phased-in approach to the return to work. So that's the good news. There's details associated with uh, what's involved in the contract. And it looks, from the outside looking in, looks fairly generous. And good news for the folks in Mount Pearl. Because some services that were diminished. And some of the fundamental things that might not be a big deal to all residents, but even like getting back into the Summit Center and the Glacier Arena and getting all of those programs back up and running because they're a little bit behind at this point. So that's the good news. We understand that the province has delivered a contract offer to NAEP, of course, the largest public sector union in the province. So, again, you wonder what will become of it. But, you know, when strikes drag on, like they did, for instance, out DJ Composites out in Central there a few years ago, and Mount Pearl, 12 weeks. And who knows what's going to happen with the NAEP offer. I can't presuppose the outcomes there. But you wonder if there's got to be pragmatic moves made to try to control the length of strikes. Because it's uncomfortable for both sides. And when we're talking about municipal offerings of provincial employees, it has a distinct impact on the general public. So it's not to take away any of the clout that's been won by organized labor with collective bargaining. Not that at all. But to try to put some caps on before you have to bring in whatever it be mediators or conciliators or arbitrators, binding or otherwise, because when the strikes drag on, it not only has an impact widely felt, it also really goes a long way to making the, the workplace less than content and pretty toxic in some environments. I don't know what's going to happen in Mount Pearl, for instance, and hopefully they can just get back to work and people can work together. But anyway, that's that one. New inflation numbers out yesterday. Okay. So, 7%. And that's good news. It's down a little further than people were anticipating. The guess was around 7.3, and it's now at 7%. What that means for me and you, it's hard to say. You know, we know what the impact is on inflationary pressures, and we all understand the cost of living and affordability issues. What this easing in inflation really means, job to say. Will it have an impact on seeing prices return back to some sense of normalcy? Maybe not. That's the problem, isn't it? You know, remember when there was a big spike in the price of lumber? And it did come back to earth a little bit. 
and whether it be the price of homes, and they've come back to earth a little bit. But things like groceries, and I just can't help but focus in on food because we can all do without certain things in this life, but we can't do without food. The food inflation numbers at 10.8% in this country. The bills have ro- risen faster on groceries than they have since 1981, and everybody's feeling it. You know, if you're in the lofty 1% and it's really not having a major impact beyond frustrating you, for so many of us, it's just, you know, you're looking at the till. They scan your groceries. you got this little half bag worth of stuff, and it's 75 bucks. So the inflationary number on food at 10.8 is really quite something. Then you add in the fact that we've got, whether or not we like it, a close binding relationship with the United States of America, and all eyes will now be on not only the Bank of Canada and the interest rate moves, which has complicated factors associated with it, but the U.S. Federal Reserve, whether we like it or not. A lot of the food we consume comes through or from the United States. If it comes from South America, it goes through the U.S., it's then priced in U.S. dollars. We know what the falling loony has meant for those additional pressures on the price tags. So it really does have an impact, politically, societally, and yes, prices on groceries. Then you add in the fact that there's a record number of job vacancies in this country. There's over a million jobs available. The problem, obviously, is that, you know, you can say that it was COVID supports has kept people out of the job market and maybe has created some air of lazy. I don't fully buy that, but the job vacancy numbers are clear. So... People are looking for more and better pay and pay packages. But the wage increases, by and large, have not kept up with inflation, have not kept up with the consumer price index. And so consequently, people are just not taking these jobs. Now, in some areas, the jobs have been, we've seen the wage increases commensurate with all the other pressures. So professional, scientific, and technical services and wholesale trade, they have seen the wages keep up with the pressures that we're all feeling. But some sectors, simply not. Retail, construction, healthcare, social assistance uh, check recipients as well. So it's all becoming part of the perfect storm, isn't it? People need more money. People can't fill the jobs. If they pay more, what's the consequence for the customer or the consumer? Inevitably, it's going to be a hike in the price of whatever they sell, whatever good or service comes out of their door. So, you know, talk about the perfect storm. And people talk about they've got all these big ideas to solve it. But really, there are some of the ideas that we hear, especially coming from politicians. It's the epitome of 100,000 feet above sea level. No real detailed strategy, no short-term solution, no long-term vision. If we're all simply relying on the big, complicated monetary policy moves at the U.S. Federal Reserve and the Bank of Canada, then by, you know, all that really matters to 99% of us is how much is it? How much is that pack of chicken breasts? How much is the carton of milk? That's what we all worry about. Now, if you're so entrenched in one in support of one political party or another, then, of course, you take it to whatever extent you see fit. But I think if we're speaking with honest tones in our quiet moments, we all just care how much stuff costs, right? If one party or another has a good idea, a short-term solve, and, you know, we're, we're all sick of the Band-Aid solutions, but anything for a bit of relief and a long-term understanding of where we're going, how we're going to get there, that would be pretty helpful. But, of course, the toxic nature of politics has overtaken the pragmatism of just trying to help us out to afford the very basics in this world. But anyway, but there are economic opportunities in this province. I know there's a lot of worried folks out there. The mining sector looks at enormous opportunity in this world. Everything comes with a price, and that includes environmental and otherwise. So where's the balance between 
comprehensive environmental assessments and dealing with red tape and sometimes completely unnecessary bureaucracy because we can't, can't stem growth unnecessarily. Now, we absolutely have to have a, a, a consideration for the environment. Of course we do. But will we get the opportunities, be able to grab them in a timely fashion to be ahead of the curve? Because far too often in this province and certainly across the country, we're kind of chasing our tail a little bit. So there's opportunities in the mining sector. And we know whether it be uh, Equinor and there what sounds to be a massive fine in the Flemish past, we're waiting for a business sanction decision from them, but it looks like it all signs point to go ahead. I mean, they said the break even was around 35 bucks a barrel. It's well over that and will be for the foreseeable future. And then things like if you're on the Port of Port Peninsula, it would be helpful to hear from folks whether you be in full-throated support of World Energy GH2 and their green hydrogen hopes, and or those, there's a couple of uh, groups that have been formed that are vocally opposed to the project. It'd be nice to hear exactly the particulars of their opposition. And we can't afford any screw-ups because we've got a fair history of screw-ups here as well. But the opportunities are absolutely there. There is a job fair, a career fair, actually happening uh, at Memorial University in CNA. So it's available to all the students and all the graduates of those two institutions. Try to match you up with a job opportunity. All right, last one. And this comes from an emailer. While I remain curious as to what is inside the bloody covers of the Rothschild report, some of the things that just become hard to understand... It's like at the NLC. It's a monopoly. It's the definition of a monopoly. The only place to get it legally, booze of any variety, is at the NLC. So why, why do they spend all the money they do on advertising? You know, we talk about the record returns to the province. The record returns could be even more because nobody needs to be told that they're selling Lambo Jambo by the bottle at the NLC or they've got this different product for the uh, fancy cocktail that you might feature at your next party. We know where to get the liquor, right? We know where to get the wine. We know where to get the beer. We know where to get the alcohol. It's at the NLC. Why are we advertising it to the extent that we do? And it doesn't come in the form of cheap advertising either. Those mail-out glossy brochures, that is not a cheap exercise. And then the, in addition to that in the emailer, the email, the gentleman points out he's a little bit tired to go to a retailer and while we're all looking at the price tags and then they ask you, would you like to make a charitable donation? Look, I know so many of you are charitable and very giving. I try to give when I can, but you feel the pressure. You don't want to hear someone say, would you like to donate to X, Y, or Z? And you say no. And then you're thinking, oh man, everyone heard me just deny a couple of shillings to one charity or another. And then the big company, whether it be the big box stores or what have you, they'll put out a press release saying, look how much money we raised. No, you didn't. I gave it to you. So he's also frustrated by that. You want to talk about it? We can do it. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. How are we doing on the telephone, David? Let's get the show rolling. That can only happen when you join us live on the air. When we come back, we're going to talk about the aforementioned Memorandum of Understanding between Ireland and this province to establish the first transboundary uh, UNESCO World Heritage Site. Tolson Randall, after the break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one. Tolson, you're on the air. Yes, good morning, Paddy. How are you this morning, Mike? Great today, sir. How are you doing? Good, thanks. It's been a long time since I spoke to you. I haven't spoke to you in a while. Welcome back. Yeah. No, I have uh, hearing BOCM news there last night and hearing tell of this uh, memorandum, memorandum of understanding of regard to the, I guess, the Canadian government and the Irish government now with the, the UNESCO thing basically in full flight. 
that's what we're told so it's a good step forward it's an interesting even concept to have what they're referring to as the first trans boundary UNESCO World Heritage Site but it's a monumental uh, time in history you know when they laid that cable finally in 1866 everything changed in the communication world this sounds like it's just it's a perfect example of what a World Heritage Site should look like Certainly is, Patty Boy. And, and like I said, I had, I've been fortunate enough that I've been over to the other side to have a look at it in here as well. Known in 2014, that's when I went over and had a look at it there on Valencia Island. And I mean, it's amazing, like I told you, it's amazing to think that. And I mean, let's give credit to the first cable, too. Uh, people are forgetting that uh, the first cable left uh, Knightstown on Valencia Island and ended up in. Bay of Bull's Arm, now Sunnyside. Sure. That was the one that, uh, you know, lasted for 30 or 35 days, and, and uh, it, 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 you know, basically it burnt out. Yeah, I mean, we shouldn't lose sight of either of these uh, incidents or events, pardon me. So this is a good one. Hopefully we can continue on with it. You know, you, you never know why people might choose to visit this province, whether it be for to see a whale or an iceberg or to go to a UNESCO World Heritage Site, which I bet you is a lot of traveling public. They look at things like this because you're looking for something to do, not just to pay through the nose to go somewhere, but to see something unique and beautiful and historical. And we've got it. Yeah, pretty but we've got it all here. We don't know how fortunate we are to have what we got. I'll give you a prime example. I worked at the cable station for years, uh, actually from 1991 to 2016. And I can never forget about this bus to pull in from Ontario, and this lady got off, and she actually moved from the U.S. somewhere to Ontario. And when she got off, she just got out of the bus, she went, <gasps> like she took a big deep breath, and man, she said, what did I ever stop in Ontario for? <laughs> right? Nice. So it was amazing. That was for me then, that was back in the 90s. I mean, that was an amazing thing to think that our ear is just that good here. We don't know what we got. Yeah, there's we a lot. Don't of realize how fortunate I would have what we got. I should say. Yeah, I suppose you're right there. Yeah. And I guess there's just a lot of frustration out there amongst the general public and wondering aloud whether or not there are greener pastures elsewhere. But having lived elsewhere and have friends around the country. There's a lot of good things, a lot of reasons why this is a great place to live. I know the frustration is real. I completely understand it. I hear it all the time. But, you know, every now and then taking time to recognize some of the great things and the upsides uh, about living in this province is sometimes worthwhile bringing into the conversation just for a bit of a bit of context. And, you know, I get the doom, but sometimes gloom is a little bit overwhelming and exhausting because there are legitimate things to talk about that are good in this uh, province. One thing before I leave, I just want to sure. let people know that I don't a lot of reading when I was up in the cable station on whole historic facts and different things, you know, of, of history. There was a guy by the name of Sa uh, Samuel Scott Bailey. He was from Old Deer in Presentia Bay. Okay. And he, he came here. Actually, he was here in 1866 uh, when the Great Eastern came in with the cable. And he went to work. He was one of the first Newfoundlanders that went to work in the cable station. And he used to have to write a letter to his mom and, and dad up in Old Deer. And how long would you take it took to get the letter there? I don't know. But three months. Yeah, sounds about right. Yeah, but anyhow, that was in, in back in then. But boy, I'm telling you now, my young father and I got children in Alberta. As a flick, and I can send them a picture of a goat or a boat or whatever case, split second they got it and I got it. Yeah, it's truly remarkable uh, just how connected we are and the speed at which we can connect with each other, regardless of where you are, for the most part, where you are in this world. Uh, good to have you on, Tolson. We'll keep an eye on this move towards the transatlantic cable ensemble. No doubt about it, Patty. And one other thing, for sure. someone that's passing through the community right now, today or tomorrow or in the years to come, you should never pass that. Just run in and have a look. You, be, you blow your mind. Sounds good, buddy. Welcome Take back to the show. Take care of Have a good one. You too, man. Bye-bye. Bye now. Uh, let's keep going. Uh, line number two. Caller, you're on the air. 
Oh, hello, Patty. Just hello. a quick comment, I think, uh, with the high food prices, people just need to think a little bit better about cooking and shopping more economically. I mean, there are people all around the world who live healthfully on rice and beans and in fixed in different ways with little bits of added things. And I'm not talking like beans and rice out of a tin. I'm talking about just plain from either the bulk barn or the grocery store and just soak the beans and then cook them with all kinds of different things you could put in with them. And also rice, uh, same plain rice, and, and you just cook it, soak it, and cook it for a while. And and adding little bits and pieces or whatever make flavor taste good. Those are very cheap things. They are very cheap, and they're healthy. And apples, there are some kinds of apples that are very reasonably priced, and, and bananas. And I think that too often we think uh, the wrong about the wrong things to cook, and we go for the expensive things that aren't necessary, uh, things in tins and boxes and and uh, well processed stuff. It's just not you're paying for the processing. You're not paying for the actual good food. Those are just my few suggestions. And they're helpful. Uh, I shop just about every day uh, for supper. And uh -huh. I'm pretty mindful of prices. It becomes a little bit challenging depending on who you are, your family, yeah. your age, all those things. But change is quite difficult, no matter what we're talking about. And changing diet is proven to be an extraordinarily difficult thing. We do eat healthier now and try to be mindful of cost but even just the fundamentals like I got two growing boys uh -huh. you know even just uh, every now and then some protein in the form of meat to yeah. add chicken to a uh, to a, a uh -huh. supper menu uh -huh. you know even just a pack of four skinless chicken breasts you're uh -huh. paying such an enormous price that you know I, I bring up what I think is a, a reasonably healthy supper with nothing processed in it all fresh and then it's just supper for four of us and I look at the, the tally, and it's $55. I'm yeah. like, what is going on here? Well, so every now and then we go on the thrifty, but even just to eat what we're kind of used to as a fundamental chicken dinner, it becomes pretty costly. I don't know how some people make ends meet. Well, I really don't. But your suggestions are, are quite helpful. Well, if you buy a whole chicken and not chicken breast, because chicken breasts are more expensive. They are. And they've had to be processed and, and taken out of the chicken and all that stuff. And if you start with the whole chicken and you eat every bit of it in one way and use the bones for a stock, it's cheaper uh, per, per ounce. But uh, you're right. I'm, but I'm just saying I've lived in lots of different places in the world, and I've seen what people can do with, just as I said, with rice and beans, not together necessarily, but, you know, taking them and adding things. Even you can add a little bits and pieces of, of meat or chicken or, or fish or whatever to those things. And fish, of course, is wonderful, and I think it's still relatively cheap compared to other forms of protein. But those are just my two little, I think just people need to think more basically and stop trying to be quite so fast and processed because that all adds time and money. That's all I wanted to say. Thanks. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. Yeah, and I think people have tried to accommodate. Uh a different type of diet, maybe based on price point, maybe based on their overall health. I mean, everybody is different in how they approach things like shopping. And sometimes it is kind of tricky to move your diet uh, as starkly as, for instance, a normal kind of dinner that 
uses chicken or pork or beef or something because a lot of people still eat meat it's just the way it is and moving off to her helpful suggestions which i have no problem uh, going with at all but you know sometimes even if folks had a hard time making ends meet two three years ago it really does feel like almost regardless of what you buy it still costs more and if you were struggling three years ago and we see inflation on food at 10.8 percent you know i'm glad that she is offering those helpful suggestions and some people may indeed have some meal based on what she said this morning whether it be rice and beans or what have you and yes there are more less expensive options out there if you are so inclined so yeah if you want to bring something something helpful to the show let's do it let's take a break when we come back we're going to line number three say good morning to the executive director of trades nl darren king just returning from the mining conference up in labrador We'll hear what went on and some of the bullish future that many people in that sector sure have. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the executive director at Trades NL. That's Darren King. Good morning, Darren. You're on the air. Hey, Patty. How are you this morning? Couldn't be better. How about you? I'm doing well, thanks. I appreciate the opportunity to have a chat. Happy to have you on. So, you know, we can all point to quite clearly some of the political shag-ups and some of the doom and gloom and inflation and what have you, but there are sectors of the economy that are poised to do great things, to be extremely prosperous, and to create a bunch of jobs. And the mining sector is certainly one of them. Speak to the bullish nature of those in attendance of what went on at MineX. Well, Monix is, uh, was a great conference. Uh, I have to say it uh, was a very, very productive two and a half days for myself. Um, you know, there's a lot, number of objectives, I guess, that we went with, and I'm sure others did as well. Obviously, first was to explore new opportunities, uh, both with the operators and our indigenous partners. Um, secondly, it was a chance to share what we're doing as an organization to support skilled trades development. Uh, and thirdly, uh, you know, we have members up there working now at IOC and Takora on a variety of maintenance and expansion work activities. So it was a chance to have a chat about any issues or concerns or anything that we need to address. But uh, it, it was clearly a very, very, very optimistic uh, outlook. Um, a lot of lot of things happening in Lab West in particular in IOC. As I said, we're in there now doing some maintenance work. Uh, there's a lot of lot of expansion plans there. The uh, the Wabush mine, as well, is doing very well. I think they have well over 400 people on a full-time basis there. And as I said, we have members in there as well doing maintenance work. Uh, Search Minerals, uh, very positive about where they're headed with their project. And there was a lot of other exploratory activities that were discussed at the, at the conference. So, you know, it certainly uh, shows a very, very bright future in mining in general, and particularly in Labrador. The trick then becomes, you know, look, we are strategically positioned in this country. We're the, one of the only democratic countries on the face of the earth that has every single component required for an electric vehicle battery. The trick is getting ahead of the curve. So it was exciting when Northvolt AB signed a contract with Valet, you know, and they represent Tel- Tesla and make those batteries. What do people say about being the tip of the spear, getting the getting ahead of it, creating our own global supply chain domestically as opposed to reliance on others. Because before you know it, some countries will get the big contracts. So there's always going to be the need for the appropriate level of environmental assessment. But we do have a problem in this country with red tape and unnecessary bureaucracy. What's the tone regarding those things? Because people want to get out in front, you know, to secure financing for starters because capital is not endless. So what do people say on the, about that stuff? 
Well, I think, you, you know, you summarized it very good. I think that there's there's definitely a, a strong feeling that uh, we have too much bureaucratic red tape that often slows us down. And if we're not careful, not only in the mining sector and, and the things you've identified, but also, you know, the wind hydrogen projects that we're talking about uh, for different parts of the province, if we're not careful, we're going to fall behind others who are going to get out in advance of it. So there's certainly, a, you know, a big urging uh, for government and, and the bureaucracy to speed up the process for permitting. There's no question about that. Um, having said that, um, you know, I, I sensed uh, a lot of research and a lot of forward thinking by the companies who are there about uh, the types of minerals we have and how we can use them. And there's, there's certainly a lot of business development activities happening both there and, uh, and outside of Newfoundland and Labrador to try and market what we have in other ways so that we're ahead of the curve. You know the other the other challenge that we we face, and you know we've talked about this for some time, and we've written Minister Byrne on it, is is the, the idea of skilled trade shortage. And you know what we've been saying for some time is that there's an issue here, and we we like said we wrote the minister on it. Um, the mining companies have identified as well that they're you know they're starting to see a skilled trade shortage. That we have to find a way to get more people into the skilled trades if we're going to continue and grow these resource-based industries. What does that look like though? Because the offerings there for the training now there's always going be the catch-22 of you know needing an apprenticeship but then you need experience to get the hire so that's been a long-running problem there's been some cooperation across Atlantic Canada with recognition of red seals for instance but what does it look like I mean is it expanding the number of seats in the vocational schools or what does the province do what's your role for instance because if people see a job they will look towards the appropriate training to get those jobs and they're well paying so what does this marriage look like well, I, you know, I don't think it's rocket science, to be frank with you. Um, you know, I, I think it boils down, first of all, A, to trades promotion, and, and we've got to get back at the high school level, junior high, senior high level, and talk to students about what a career in the trades looks like, um, what kind of an income you can have, what kind of a lifestyle you can have, and, and the kinds of work that you can do. And, you know, in the skilled trades in particular, I mean, even within our organization, we probably have somewhere between 35 and 40 different trades that one can do. So I think, first of all, that's what you need to do. Second, The second piece, you hit the nail on the head. If there are jobs, people will come. There's no question about it. Um, we, we do a really good job here in the province on our resource development projects, like, like the project in Argentia right now uh, and others that we're looking at, where, where we require a, a percentage of those hired to be apprentices. So there's guaranteed work opportunities. Uh, you know, as we've been advocating for some time, I think the province needs to step up and make that a requirement on provincial work, that whoever does provincial work, whether it's union or non-union, is irrelevant. But contractors doing provincial work need to provide secure spaces for apprentices so that there's guaranteed opportunities for new trades, tradesmen and women to get job opportunities. And the private sector, uh, you know, and what I'm seeing out of Labrador, at least uh, right now, I think the private sector are stepping up, but they all need to do that and they all need to provide opportunities. It's, uh, you know, Patty, as you said, not to use the cliche, but, you know, if you build it, they will come. People will go to work in the trades if they see there's an opportunity to get a job and make a career at it, but they're not going to go to work if they don't see any opportunity. What also factors in here is not only whether I can get a job with a, a reasonable rate of pay, but just where I'm moving. So in Lab West, we've got the boom and bust cycle. So all of a sudden, housing becomes a concern. So they might be dangling a job in front of you for $40 an hour, exactly what you're looking for, exactly what you're trained for. Then you look around and say, well, I've got a wife and a child or two. I'm moving to Lab West. Where am I going to live? What does the industry need to do to address that? I've long flicked this out there. And this might be outlandish, but I talk about it. Is in, inside of benefits agreements, you know, royalty and taxes and the like, if some of the big operators were forced to build affordable housing for their employees to try to ease the burden on the residents who live there full time, maybe it would be a little ahead of the curve. So the housing issue gets factored in here and it's not an easy solve. 
Well, it's not an easy solve, particularly in Lab West. Uh, there's no doubt that, that there's a big crunch up there now, and, and it's to the point where a number of the contractors that we deal with are actually buying up buildings and housing themselves. Because when we when we send workers in, oftentimes now the camps are full. So it, it, it is a big question. There's or, sorry, a big issue. There's no doubt about that. Uh, and I agree with you. I think we need to find a creative way, either within benefits agreements or otherwise, uh, to make sure the housing is taken care of. I mean, you know, in, in Lab West, as an example, there, there's two opportunities there. One is that you move to Lab West, and the second is that you commute. And and neither is for everyone. Some people want to stay and live in their own communities, whether it's the coast of Labrador or somewhere in rural Newfoundland and Labrador, and they don't mind commuting for two weeks as long as there's housing provided, and they come back home and spend two weeks. Others want to move their family in there, and both option, options have to be available if we're going to attract people to those jobs. I mean, there, there's some very, very good jobs in, in the trades all over the place, including Lab West, but there, the conditions have to be right so that it, it supports not only the career and the wages that someone likes, but supports the family lifestyle they want as well. I appreciate the time. Anything else you'd like the listeners to hear this morning before we move on to the break? Uh, no, I, listen, I just appreciate your time. Um, we're putting out a release on a couple of other things over the next few days, so I, I suspect, uh, unrelated to this, I suspect you and I will probably be chatting again later in the week, early next week. Look forward to it. Thanks for this this morning, Darren. Appreciate your time, Patty. All the best. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's Darren King. He's uh, the executive director at Trades and Out, and the opportunities are there. But, you know, it's the other moving parts that we've got to be mindful of. I mean, housing sounds so fundamental, but it's a massive problem exactly where we have major opportunities. So you can't have one without the other. And I thought, <laughs> maybe this is completely out-to-lunch idea, but inside the benefits agreements, just imagine the long-term benefits to a region. If, for instance, one mining giant or another, as part of their arrangement and permission to proceed with a mine or an expansion of a mine in Lab Labrador, Lab West, and we're talking about here now, is the need to construct X number of affordable housing units. And, you know, and they're owned by the province. You know, they can use them for their own employees, but at some point when their mind is, has to be remediated and they move on or whatever the case may be, the housing units are there. Because you have the people who can afford the high rent making big bucks, it forces others who are not directly involved in the mining sector or don't have a high-paying job, what happens to them? Because everything, you know, everything has an impact or a trickle effect or a ripple effect to every other part of the community because not everyone's working in the mine, but everyone needs a roof over their head. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about pain management. You hear me quite often talking about the, medica uh, the Medication Therapy Services Clinic at Munn School of Pharmacy. Dr. Kathy Balsam and Jeremy McDonald talk about how that clinic can help you manage your pain. Don't go Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to Dr. Kathy Balsam and clinical pharmacist as well, Jeremy McDonald from the Medication Therapy Services Clinic at Memorial University School of Pharmacy. Good morning to you both. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Great today. Thanks. How about you, Dr. Balsam? Oh, great. I just wanted to call in today. Basically, we get so much uh, feedback and calls after we are always on your show. So I wanted to call in because it is International Pain Month and Arthritis Month. So I just wanted to give um, you know this opportunity to let your listeners know how we can help uh, manage pain at the MTS Clinic. Sure. Uh, before we get to that, I wanted to say a specific congratulations to you, Kathy, with your teaching as a teaching assistant professor appointment at Mon. Good on you. Oh, thanks so much. Happy to do it. Okay. So first off, I have a fundamental question. You know, years ago, there was no such thing as an official discipline in medicine as chronic pain management, but now it is so. How important has that been? Because chronic pain is an underlying medical condition that doesn't get the attention it requires. 
Yeah, uh, for sure. So good morning, Patty. My morning. name is Jeremy. I'm uh, also a clinic pharmacist uh, with Kathy here at the MTS clinic. So certainly chronic pain is a is a big condition that sometimes gets overlooked. We have, you know, many, many contributors to, to pain. You know, some people may be experiencing depression that uh, is not, you know, necessarily treated very well and, and can uh, contribute to, to pain and, and everything. So certainly here at the, the clinic, we kind of take a holistic approach to looking at people's, you know, medical conditions, uh, the medications that they're taking to make sure that, you know, the medications that they are taking and the different, you know, lifestyle uh, factors that they're taking uh, into account are uh, optimized and are best uh, for each individual patient. So for either one of you, okay, I present at the clinic to talk about managing my chronic pain. Do we start with my daily lifestyle choices, whether it be for activity and ways to boost my natural endorphins, or where do we start the process? Yeah, I think we start by actually spending about an hour or so <laughs> getting to know you and really determining, you know, what is it, um, what does your daily life look like? Are you someone that's able to participate in exercise or is your pain hindering that? You know, what are you currently trying for pain? How well it's working? We can suggest management. Uh, we can, you know, triage and determine whether or not we should refer out to other providers to see maybe it's physio or dietetics or whatever it may be. And then we'll work with the prescriber just to see if there's any other way that we can impact uh, the pain management for the better. Some people will turn to self-medication, which of course is part of the lifestyle choices that we all make. So is it common for you folks to identify the fact that someone has been prescribed something that is not necessarily in tune with their specific needs? Because we talk about your clinic and if you're taking five or more medications to get them reviewed, whether it be by a pharmacist at your shop, local shop, or go to your clinic. But how common is it to find upon further investigation that maybe the drug you've been prescribed is simply not working or doesn't jive with the kind of symptoms that you're experiencing? Yeah, for sure, Patty. So, you know, oftentimes when we look at the treatments for pain, a lot of the medications that we kind of go to are over-the-counter medications that you, you know, you can find in your local pharmacy. So a lot of them include like uh, acetaminophen or Tylenol, um, anti-inflammatories or things like, uh, you know, topical anti-inflammatories like Voltaren. So a lot of, you know, these medications are things that people can take off the shelf. And it's certainly important to speak with your pharmacist prior to, you know, selecting those medications to make sure that they are appropriate for you and here at the clinic when we uh, you know complete medication reviews of patients we often look at the medications for if you know for one if they're effective are they working well and you know allowing you to reach your goals with your pain management but then we also look at uh, you know are you tolerating them are you having any side effects from those medications oftentimes uh, pain medications can interact with other things that you're taking or um, you know they can increase your blood pressure possibly depending on the medication so we kind of take a holistic approach just to make sure that those medications are safe for you but also uh, that they're effective for you or you know perhaps there could be an alternative that might be better for you well let's talk about the over-the-counter product so so many of the choices we make is based on marketing it's so powerful even if it's just subconsciously so some people will simply go ahead and buy Tylenol or Advil because that's what they buy so the difference between acetaminophen and ibuprofen is clear I choose ibuprofen because I associate swelling and anti-inflammatory as some of the relief of the pressures that my body feels whether it be for my chronically bad shoulder or the like. What do people need to know about the difference between acetaminophen and ibuprofen? There's definitely some 
fundamental differences there. And you mentioned the anti-inflammatory properties of the Advil, and there are less of those properties associated with Tylenol. And like you said, we definitely have to take a personalized approach to this, and marketing does greatly affect uh, what choice people make at the pharmacy, as does, you know, what their neighbor's taking or their their spouse or their children or whatever it may be, you know. That word of mouth about medications also makes a big difference. So here we really like to hone in on the fact that we need to make personalized choices. So what works for your neighbor or your husband or whatever may not be the best choice for you for pain, not only because of the type of the pain, but because of how that medication affects your body given your medical condition. So, you know, it's certainly important to not just kind of pick one off the shelf based on marketing or, you know, word of mouth, but to actually talk to your healthcare provider and your pharmacist being really important there. It's, it sounds about right. How difficult is it to get into your clinic? Because we talk about shortages, staffing and otherwise, and, you know, diversions from ERs, and no one has a family doctor, or that's not fair. There are so many people without a family doctor. How timely is it that you can see a patient? Yeah, so Patty, right now we can usually see somebody within a couple of weeks. I know we've chatted a lot, but Jeremy is, a, you know, another full-time pharmacist that we've hired on here. Um, so now we're increasing our capacity and our ability to kind of really help those that are stuck uh, right now within the healthcare system. So, you know, typically if you call us, we can see you within a week or, you know, a couple of weeks, I should say. This is a generic question. How generic? Some people take the generic equivalent of some of those name brand drugs too, which I, as a rule, well, I guess. I shouldn't say you're the clinical pharmacist. The generic equivalents, they're perfectly fine, right? Yes. <laughs> um, in some rare cases, we might have somebody that may react differently to the fillers that make up the actual tablet composition. So in some rare cases, some people can't tolerate generics, but there are, you know, studied to be within a certain equivalency um, by Health Canada. So they're certainly there to do the job of the brand name. Yeah, maybe a binding agent doesn't sit well with your system. Okay, this is a generic question for both of you. I'll let you speak to it. Inside the healthcare delivery system, we have got different disciplines who are clamoring to be able to do more for what they're trained to do, what they're accredited to do, what they know how to do as a professional healthcare worker, and that's a scope of practice issue. The province says it's looking at expanding the scope of practice for pharmacists. Some of that is associated with uh, legislation. Some of that is associated with, I would imagine, conversation or negotiation between the different disciplines and their umbrella representative bodies. So. What importance does it hold for pharmacists? Because I don't even know why we don't do this. If we could ease the burden on one discipline or another to allow them to do what they're trained to do, accredited to do, licensed to do, makes a bit of sense. How encouraged are you by the promises commentary? I'll give you both a crack at this one. Sure. I guess I'll go first, Patty. I mean, I'm really excited, obviously, um, about, you know, the talk that pharmacists may be able to expand our scope. Um, you know, we are trained professionals in this area. We know a lot about medication, so we can help, you know, um, encourage uh, more patients to be getting the access that they need. We do see a lot of people f come into clinic that are really scrambling because they don't have a healthcare provider. And as pharmacists, we can extend prescriptions, but that has a time limit, you know, so we can only do it for a certain amount of time. So we're we're certainly looking forward to hearing Minister Osborne's uh, announcement on what that expan expansion to pharmacist scope will be so that we can really help, you know, patients. We, we, I definitely feel like my hands are tied a lot. Um, so now, hopefully, we'll be able to do more to help and be able you know to expand our scope and really practice to our full scope jeremy give us a, a specific example where you think you could do more for a patient but unfortunately you're not allowed 
Yeah, for sure, Patty. So like uh, Kathy said, I'm also quite excited for the uh, announcement and, and very hopeful. I know myself and other colleagues from even other disciplines are, uh, you know, looking forward to possible changes with their scope of practice and being able to practice, you know, to their expertise. And like Kathy said, oftentimes our hands are tied with, you know, if we perform a prescription extension for three months and then the patient still isn't able to access a healthcare provider, certainly that could be an example of ways that we can help. You know, uh, many you know, many people in the province of Newfoundland and Labrador are without a primary care provider. And, you know, as pharmacists, we're trained to assess the efficacy and the tolerability of medications. So certainly we can help with extending prescriptions further in the absence of a primary care provider. And Patty, I know we've talked a lot before about de-prescribing, and I think this is a big role that hopefully will uh, be encompassed by this change of scope. For example, if someone comes in here and they're on chronic pain medication and maybe it's a narcotic or an opioid and they really don't, you know, really want to continue on this therapy and they want to decrease their dose, for example. Currently, we're not allowed to change the doses, so we have to wait for another healthcare provider. And oftentimes, some, as you mentioned, a lot of people don't have that primary care provider right now. So even if someone wants to come off of their opiates, we currently can't change the dose to give them a lower dose and kind of walk them through the tapering process. But that could be an example where we could help manage somebody's pain with another alternative and help them work off of, work with coming off of another medication. Yeah, and, and that's a great point that Kathy made. You know, it's something that we often do is de-prescribing with patients and just being able to have that ability to help with decreasing the doses um, would certainly allow us to deliver those services more effectively and more efficiently. It's been great to have you both on. Uh, the Medication Therapy Services Clinic at Munns School of Pharmacy, easy to connect with them. The general office telephone number is, of course, area code 709-864-6190. If you'd like to send them an email, it's a simple no, address. Right. Pardon me? Sorry, it's 864-2274. Oh, you changed the number. <laughs> Yeah, because I had it in my little address book as uh, 6190, but I guess it's been changed. So give it one more time. We've got to get the accurate number out there. Sorry, Patty. It's 864-2274. 2274 it is. It's great to have you both on. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. It's Dr. Kathy Balsam and Jeremy uh, McDonald from the Medication Therapy Services Clinic at Munn. Good one. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, Sean's in the queue. This is an interesting topic. We'll see where it goes. He wants to talk about the morality police. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. And welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number two, Sean, you're on the air. Good morning, Patrick. How are you? Okay, how you doing? Oh, well, pretty good. Uh, very disturbed, though, at what's, what uh, has happened over in Iran, especially in light of where we are these days. I mean, uh, in the world, our freedoms are so important and what you wear shouldn't get you killed. Uh, fighting a war over in uh, Ukraine probably will. Um, maybe driving too fast on a highway, but like what you wear, again, you get picked up by the morality police because you wore a garment a little bit uh, too showy than, than what they liked, and then you, they end up killing you in, like in custody, which is what happened to Mesha Amini over in Iran in the past uh, couple of weeks. And uh, she's only 22 years old, and there's protests going on now in Berlin outside the Iran, the Iranian embassy. And I think we should be doing it all over the country, all over the world. Uh, we'll protest and we'll march for workers' rights, for gay rights, for all kinds of things, climate change. But you know, you're like what you wear in this this day and age should not be a hazard to your health. 
Well, I mean, I see the, I'll call them parties, where women in Iran are burning their headscarves or their kneecaps. And fair enough. You know, it's hard to get into a culture that is as deep-rooted in symbolism and uh, attention to attire, whether or not women are allowed to drive or go to school or some of the fundamentals that we simply take for granted in the, this part of the world. I was going to say this modernized part of the world, but Iran, of course, is a modern country. So, yeah, sure. I mean, attention to those types of things. But let's not lose sight of the fact that some of that stuff is happening right here in this country, predominantly in the province of Quebec, about wearing religious symbols if you're a public sector worker. I mean, just imagine something that if it's important to you and it's part of your traditions or your culture or your religion, and now they've actually got legislation prohibiting people from doing these types of things. Like, I mean, if some people are for, like, okay, it's a difference if you're a Sikh and you wear your headdress as opposed to a woman have been forced to wear a burqa or a kneecap. So it's actually happening in this country too. So we can't pretend that we're, we've got it all figured out as Canadians either. No, and, and look, I realize that, Patrick, but, uh, you know, I think the more we, we bring major attention to this through, you know, through uh, through human rights uh, groups and so on, and even everyday people, and just imagine you go to put on a certain type of hat this morning uh, to head out the door and someone says you can't wear the hat, you know, that that's offending someone. I mean, how foolish... To, uh, to have that going on in this age. And I just think, yes, I agree, we're doing it in our own country uh, for religious reasons and so on. Um, uh, people want to wear a certain type of garment, and, and they should be permitted to do that, unless it can't be, uh, you know, or unless it's going to get in the way of, of them doing their, uh, their work. You know, I mean, I don't know how, how, like how it would, but, you know, if you're a surgeon and you have to wear a certain type of, of, uh, of garment in the uh, surgical ward and so on, like it might come up in that situation, but you know, just simply putting on a garment and then getting arrested and killed, and or at least that's the allegation in custody in this day and age. I think it's uh, it's it's just abhorrent, and I really think that we've uh, from from the government of Canada to everyday people in the country around the world, we should all uh, voice our our. Uh, or disgust at that kind of thing. I mean, governments talk big game about uh, attention to human rights, and they'll identify specific countries and talk about human rights violations, but at the exact same time, doing business with them. Right? You know, that's always been staggering to me. Let's take, for instance, what has become the biggest bully on the block being China. We'll talk about uh, human rights violations, and there was recently an anniversary of uh, what we saw, the atrocities in Tiananmen Square, and yet... We do business with them. Of course, I guess people feel like we're forced to do business with them. It's one of the biggest consumer markets on the face of the earth. There's over a billion people living in the country. And then you have people who will also talk about it, but at the very next breath, they're looking at an item on a shelf at a box store that's made in China, profited in China, made by slave labor, and they buy it. So we've got to make personal decisions as much as governments need to make realistic decisions that are in line with their talk about human rights and actually doing things about it. You know, it's not for us to be the morality police of of the world, but talking about it and actually our actions are two different things. Yeah, I agree with you, and I think it's time now we all took some action in this area. I personally don't like to buy anything that's made in China. Um, you know, I just don't do it, uh, and then I try to buy as much as I can that's that's made in North America, or at least in Canada, if it's available. Uh, and uh, one one more thing too, uh, on this whole morality thing, uh, you know, the social media, the YouTube. Uh, avenue and all the rest of it, you know, like we use it for all kinds of things. I just recommend that everybody, 
and like anyone who's who's disgusted with this thing in this particular case, this poor woman who was killed, you know, for the sake of what she wore, I think everyone should take a moment instead of just flicking down through their news feeds and all that. Place a place a uh, disgusting, or at least a commentary there, if you will, around the planet, and you know, like it will get noticed over there. Whether it'll change anything, we don't know, but it but it can't hurt. Fair ball. Appreciate the time this morning, Sean. Thanks a lot. Okay. Take Have care. You too. Bye bye. All right, let's go to line number three. Good morning, Joan. You're on the air. Oh, good morning, Patty. How are you? Great today. Thanks. How about you? Oh, good. Thanks. Um, I um, I have a little favor to ask people. Um, I went to uh, come from away the other night, and it was absolutely phenomenal. Um, my neighbor is 93. She will be 94 soon, and I can't afford to go buy another ticket. You know, like two more tickets because my husband and I bought one. And uh, but I was wondering if there was anybody out there who's got season tickets and just don't, you know, are not going, and if they want to give this lady, well, I need to be with her, but, you know, I, I'm not going because I need to go because I've already been there. But I was wondering if anybody had season tickets to give this lady and I could bring her to, because when I talked about it, she was saying, oh, my, I wish I, I wish I had gone and all this and stuff. So, anyways, just putting it out there and just wondering if somebody would be kind enough if they had something lying around, people had, you know, season tickets and say, oh, well, I'm not going and don't bother to give it to anybody or something like that, right? So you're looking for a ticket to go see Come From Away? Yeah, two tickets, because I had to take her, but I've been there, so, I mean, but she can't go by herself, right? Well, she's yeah. 93, and she's still me 94. Her mind is as great as a tack, and, I mean, she's not in a wheelchair. She still lives in her own home, and and she's fabulous. But um, anyways, yeah, and I was just wondering... If someone do have tickets, because it's on again tonight, isn't it? Is it the third night? I think so, yeah. Yeah. I'll see if I can wrangle something up. I heard them talking about it on the morning show. Mm-hmm. I don't know if we have any in-house here, but certainly if you have a pair of tickets for the performance tonight and you're unable to attend and you'd like to put them in the hands of Joan and her, her uh, elderly neighbor, we'll be happy to try to connect you with it. I'll have a look around the office too. I don't know if there are any here. If there are, I'll snag a couple. But I really appreciate that. I yeah. really do. And for the listeners out there, if you know of someone who's got the pair they can't use them or you'd like to be involved in putting a smile on this lady's face, it's really quite something. I, it's curious that you called this morning. I went to the gas station and the lady, the clerk at the gas station this morning she told me about she went last night and yeah. absolutely loved it now it's not the full musical that we would see on the big stage but it is the concert but, variety oh people love gosh. it it was absolutely i went to see elton john and he was out of this world i mean i've gone down and gone to so many concerts but elton john was just i think one of the fabulous persons but this show and the ages that these people are and their their mind there's you know their mind that they can remember all their parts and are just so so um, athletic and just going on stage and going back it just amazes me how they can do that it's like oh my gosh i loved every moment of it it was fabulous it was absolutely did you go i saw the musical yes i did i was lucky enough to see it once and i really liked it too i didn't know necessarily what to expect and sometimes some of the stereotypical stuff kind of grates me a little bit but yeah. I loved it there was lots of laughs there was lots of poignant moments it was really lovely and there's no there's no coincidence it did so well in countries around the world so oh it was brilliant my gosh. Stuff. 
But, you know, everybody was going with the music and clapping and doing and, you know, so happy. And and I got to say this, and I really appreciate all the people that were in the stadium. When they had talked about the 9-11 event, event the stadium just, you could hear a pin drop. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I thought, you know, it, it, it brought a tear to my eye because when you look back and see what happened, you know, and everything. But but it was, yeah, and I said, so, so nice that everybody just stopped and listened, and it was so still. Like there was nobody in the in the stadium. It was like when they talked about the 9-11 and when they had to go and they were trying to get all to their loved ones and everything. But what's such a amazing show and the energy of these people are phenomenal i mean three nights in a row they're doing this and they're going to other places in newfoundland what they've been to gander haven't they or been they're going to grand falls or i'm not sure i know they're going to cornerbrook aren't they they are yeah they've got a, a couple of stops or a handful of stops in yes. different parts of the province have you by chance seen the documentary i think it's called we come from away about that no, about the no, issues I in gander i tell you what if you ever see it on the dial mm-hmm. uh, on the guide on your tv it's worth the watch because it's really it's not the stories as told by the folks in gander necessarily it no. focuses it on a bunch of the people that were in Gander as stranded passengers. It's really terrific doc to watch, so keep your eyes peeled for that. Well, I have the book, and uh, and it just amazes me that they've done so well with this, and just for someone came out with an idea, and it became a Broadway play, and it's gone everywhere, and the monies that have taken in as well, I mean, it's just it's phenomenal. I, it's unbelievable that someone's idea and they take it this far, right? Well, you know, it's part of the story is really kind of interesting as well. When uh, David Hine and Irene Sankoff mm-hmm. are behind it, and they went to some of the people in Gander and tried to find some of the stranded passengers to say that we've got funding from the government of Canada to write a musical about yeah. what happened. And lo and behold, it was a Broadway smash hit. I, mean, I know. We it saw it in London uh, this summer, and it was in Australia and m- many other countries as well. So it's a real heart warmer. Uh, okay, Joan, so... Let me see if we can get a listener to set you up with a, few, a couple of tickets for the performance tonight. I will have a look to see if there's any kicking around this office, and I'm glad you enjoyed it, and hopefully we can set oh. you up for tonight. Okay, thank you so much. I appreciate that, Patty. Have a great day now. Same to you. Take care. Okay, bye. All right, bye-bye. Uh, okay, let's take a break. I'll have to check in with some of the crew here to see what's shaking. Uh, when we come back, we're talking about Ukraine. Okay, don't go away. And welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number four, Colin, you're on the air. Morning, Mr. Daly. How are you this morning? I'm very well, thanks. How about you? Good, thanks. I want to talk about uh, the current situation in uh, Ukraine, the uh, Russian-Ukraine war. And it, uh, it appears that the Russians are being routed now by the Ukrainian forces and being pushed back. And the Ukrainians are regaining a lot of their land that was seized by Russia. And I think we have to uh, explore the consequences of a Russian loss in Ukraine. What would that look like? What, what would be the ramifications for the region and for and globally? And in particular, uh, what happens to Putin if uh, he loses the war uh, internally within Russia? Is he going to be replaced? Uh, if so, by whom? Well, because as of now, he's made it pretty much impossible (laughs) to uh, see him removed or replaced. But, of course, that could change dramatically with whatever the end result is on this front. You know, this has really been difficult to follow. And what I mean by that is, depending on who you listen to, 
people may have very different versions as to why this, what seems to be indefensible aggression, has why it took place, the success that either side is having, the off-ramps, who supports it, who doesn't. It's just a real mixed bag because there's very little on-the-ground coverage from what we would call reputable, trustworthy sources. So you can see the Russian campaign of information or disinformation in this case talk about how they're winning. And now it's gone from simply battle over land to all of a sudden it's this culture war, you know, and Putin defending Western civilization from this woke liberals and all this spiritual uh, issues and culture wars. It's just the weirdest thing, even though what's happening is atrocious. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, it, it, it begs the question that uh, uh, if he loses the war uh, and he is replaced and it is, you know, somebody within the uh, the uh, Kremlin hierarchy or somebody from outside of that, uh, is this person going to be even worse than he is? He was on uh, Russian television this morning uh, doing some saber rattling again and, and threatening the West to not back Russia into a corner and that uh, all options are on the table, including nuclear weapons. Earlier in the week, Biden uh, mentioned, I think, from London when he was over there for the Queen's funeral, that uh, if Russia uses chemical or nuclear weapons, there will be consequences. It will be consequential. What does that mean? You know, obviously, it's going to be consequential for everybody if something like that happens. But I mean, we we start to we have to start laying down some firm uh, lines of demarcation, I think, um, and, and 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 make it abundantly clear to the Russians uh, that uh, there are some boundaries that cannot be crossed, and there will be severe consequences for them to do that. And uh, Putin has to be made to understand that. You know, I think. Yeah, but the, the so-called saber-rattling, which is what it is, it's hard to know how much merit that has, whether or not there's the safeguards in place to keep a, a maniac like Putin from doing something like that. But again, it's not that this is the first time. It's amazing that people are falling for, I'll, I'll say falling for, the nonsense surrounding the culture war facet of this, because that thin, weak justification is nonsense, and it's not the first time. They Putin has tried this in other parts of Europe already. There was lots of this type of commentary coming from France. There was lots of this commentary coming from Hungary. And it's just the most wafer-thin justification for what is, I think, a violation of criminal law, international criminal law, for starters. So, but how can we be so foolish to fall for any of that type of stuff when it's not about that? If we're relying on Vladimir Putin to defend anybody's values and their culture, then, my God, we're so sadly mistaken and falling down a rabbit hole of which there's no coming back. I agree. And I think uh, if Russia does lose this war in Ukraine, and uh, Putin is either removed, uh, uh, you know, by force, or he steps down, or, or whatever, however that happens to shake out, uh, we have to look at China, and what what are the implications for China if uh, Russia loses? I think the Chinese are going to look at Russia as a uh, as a weak partner. A wounded animal, yeah. Yeah, pretty much. And I think it's going to embolden China, make China, uh, you know, strengthen their position in in Asia and globally as a uh, cement their their footing as a uh, a credible uh, superpower uh, to the West, to the United States and NATO, you know. Well, they're quietly enjoying it uh, because they're one of the few countries that may stand to benefit from this. 
So it's all quite something. The solidarity amongst NATO members and G7, G20 countries is all fine. And the provision of humanitarian aid and military aid is all fine. But what is not being discussed, as I think you rightfully point out, is early on in the war, people talked about the off-ramps so that it doesn't get worse or the boundaries of the war aren't restricted to the unfortunate atrocities that we see in Ukraine. I mean, even just factoring some of the stories about some of the towns where the Russians have been pushed back and looking at the, the graves and the, uh, the evidence of torture and the stuff, I mean, this is just something else. Can we please not talk about a cultural war? Well, what we're seeing is a travesty, is a tragedy. You know, I, I just don't get it. I, I really, truly don't. There's a lot of culture war warriors in this part of the world who are, well, whether it be willfully or not, promoting that foolishness. And people are listening to it. But when that's the secondary story, if it indeed it's even secondary, it'd be way down the list of importance, if you ask me, and certainly if you ask the people of Ukraine. Absolutely. It's, it's uh, wild. It is. And the United States, you know, uh, are talking about uh, bringing uh, Putin and his henchmen to justice for the uh, war crimes, as you quite rightly point out, that, that have been committed and are being committed and will be committed. Uh, but I, I note that the United States is not a member of the International Criminal Court, right? And neither is Russia. So uh, the United States, uh, in a lot of ways, uh, you know, they talk a good game, but you got to walk the walk, too. Uh, if you want uh, Putin and his henchmen held accountable for the atrocities that have been committed in this war, the United States has to join the International Criminal Court in The Hague. I appreciate the time this morning, and you know, the folks, so uh, look, I get it. Every time we talk about uh, humanitarian aid, military aid, money's flowing from our country, the States, or other European countries to Ukraine, people always say, well, you know, there's important things to uh, attend to at home. They're not wrong, except for the fact that the worst-case scenario outcomes here will have a measurable impact, a negative one, in the entirety of the world, including right here where we live. So you can't lose sight of that. Well, we all count the pennies, and we all look at, you know, how much money has flowed from our country to other developing nations and or to the war in Ukraine, the implications of this going in the worst direction possible, it impacts us. So I, I get it. You know, we can look at homelessness and the children living in poverty and one, there's 22,000 children of food insecure. That's all real. But let's be honest, the outcome here, and even if you just want to extrapolate it to the, the next step, which is what the implication has this been on your pocketbook? And we, we can talk about the humanity, the humanity of it all, or the lack thereof, but it's impacted you already. So making this end the best way possible is in our collective best interest. If you think that you hate the, fa the fact that there's money flowing there, but you went to the grocery store and then complained about it, then there's over distinct overlaps here. So a lot of these things work concurrently. There's nothing in a standalone issue in this very small global world that we now live in. Uh, last word to you, Colin, before I take a break. Well, you're absolutely right. It, uh, the war is regional. They're now between two sovereign nations in uh, Eastern Europe, but it does have global impact. So when you talk about that war, uh, you have to look at the global picture, the big picture, and take in uh, all the moving parts, and it's very complicated. It's not pretty. Not just, you, you just can't look at it in isolation, right? I appreciate this. Thank you. Cheers. Bye, Colin. Bye. Yeah, it, it's impacting us. It just really, truly is. I know that, you know, depending on where you are in the political spectrum, it's easy to blame the Bank of Canada, or it's easy to blame Justin Trudeau, or it's easy to blame the liberal ideologies, it, but there's a variety of things that are contributing. It might not be what you want to hear, but it's really true. 
Now, you know, in some of the cures long term here, when we talk about just how life was interrupted and prices skyrocketed and uh, goods and services were in high demand but weren't there, then try to cure some of our own woes and ills with attending to be more self-sufficient. I know it's not it's not possible in every facet of life, but it is on some. Uh, will I take uh, Chris before the break here? Yeah, let's go. Let's go to line number three. Chris, you are on the air. Hello, how are you doing today, sir? Great today, thank you. How are you? Good. Good. Uh, um, I'm from St. John's of Lamb. This is my first time calling, by the way. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, uh, you just saying to confirm your name uh, from the States? Uh, uh, I got a hard time names. I'm sorry, say that again? You just pronounced the, 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 the president from the States just then? Uh, I didn't mention his name, but the president of the United States is Joe Biden, yeah? Uh, yeah, um, yeah. Um, somebody told me, it was on the NTV News a couple of times, that it's supposed to be an increase on GST. Uh, stand on October the 5th and January the 5th. Um, the people that are the low, uh, people who are married, got kids, they would receive 500. And for people that are single and low income, they would get double what they get. And she is the, if someone gets like 220, they would double that. And uh, on January the 5th and uh, October the 5th. Now, have you heard anything about that? I have. It was part of the inflation package that the federal government announced, and the, uh, the specifics are, if you're a single and currently receiving GST, uh, this is a, they're doubling the credit for six months. We don't know if it's going to be on the October check, or the government says people will get it before the end of the year. But here's the numbers. Uh, a single Canadian without children, the additional, the additional bump is $234. If you are a couple with two children or more, you receive an extra $467. Seniors get an extra $225. That's on the average when it refers to seniors, but those are the numbers. But there's been no firm declaration that it will be on the October check. It simply says it'll be up before the end of the year. Okay, uh, like I'll get 220. I got diabetes, diabetes type 2, um, 54 years old. So I'll try and figure out, like, uh, if it's going to be um, October the 5th or January the 5th. It's not going to be on January the 5th. Well, they say it's not going to be, but nor do they say it will absolutely be on your October check. It may indeed be a separate GST check that comes out later in the year, but before the end of the year. Are they going to do that once, uh, one three months, or uh, twice in other th another three months? Or is it only one time only? It's a one time only, as far as it reads. All right, so uh, all right, thanks a lot. You're welcome, Chris. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, let's go and take a break. When we come back, uh, Brian and Maureen, they're in the queue. We'll hear from them right after this. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Uh, let's go. Line number five. Brian, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Not too bad. Thanks. about you? Well, you know... I'm a political, I'm a political atheist, you know that, I've said that many times. I don't believe in politics, I don't believe in politicians, so uh, you'll have to take my comments with, uh, with that background. Now, when I look at the, I want to mention the United States. Democracy down there is dead and buried. Now, I had some... Uh, I did some work out west with funeral homes, and we used to bury people. If the United States was a person, it would be dead. Look what's happening. Uh, the, the President of the United States 
Walter Trump or whatever the heck his name is. His name is Donald, the former president, yes, Donald, Donald Trump. Trump. I was only joking because I don't even think that his, his, his name should be spoken in, in, in polite public there, uh, Mr. I don't believe it. Anyway, look what he did. He stole top secret documents out of the White House and brought them down to his little uh, summer shack in Moralego, uh, Florida. Yeah, I and guess now, we'll, well. Okay. No, and now he's bought himself a judge that agrees with him. He's going to walk away from that pretty scot free. And Patty, I don't know what documents he got, but I believe that someone over in the Ukraine is going nowhere where you keep your underwear. You know, I don't know exactly what's in it. Uh, it's it's interesting how people dismiss it as if there's nothing to see here, folks. When we had to listen for the last number of years about uh, Hillary going to prison and her emails, and of yeah. course that was earth-shattering, but this isn't. I don't know what the outcome will be. There's certainly plenty of investigation ongoing. I, I don't know how quickly the Department of Justice will move, if they do at all, whether there'll be an indictment coming. I really don't know. But it's, it's amazing that he's able to fundraise so efficiently off of these things. Oh. It, it's oh just God. extraordinary to watch. I don't really quite get it. Uh, and but I think he's been a disaster as far as I can tell. But see, he's able to run, um, able to raise so much money because people believe him. Um, and that's why I say democracy is dead. You know, uh, perhaps Ron DeSanto may be able to take him on. I don't know. But Ron DeSanto is no better than Trump himself. Ron DeSantis, of course, is the governor of Florida. Yeah, he's in the news recently, himself and Texas Governor Abbott, with their want and what they've done in shipping uh, immigrants into Martha's Vineyard in particular. Apparently, there's another busload heading for, or an airplane full, heading towards Joe Biden's uh, hometown in Delaware. So I just don't know, but it seems to be pretty bizarre. That that plane has landed. Has it? Okay. Oh, it's DeSantis just trying to make a guy's name a television again. And I think the big story that uh, your your station is missing is a story that Joe Scarborough had on this morning on on Morning Show. Uh, Vladimir Putin has said he's ready for a nuclear war with the United States. Well, you know, Patty, I'm sick and tired and tired and sick of Vladimir Putin. But I'm going to tell you something. Okay. And this is what I believe. You can people out there can call me crazy, or I got a tinfoil in my head getting messages from outer space. But in 1960, there was a showdown with the United States and Russia over in over in Cuba, mm-hmm. and John Kennedy stared down Khrushchev, and he won that. The Americans have been planning for this day ever since then. And Putin is carrying on as if he knows everything about what the Americans have or don't have. But I'm going to tell you, as a as a as a person who don't trust Putin, but and I don't believe it's all okay. that right. I don't think many people in the world trust him. But the nuclear inventory is. I would imagine pretty accurate. There's ongoing inspections ever since there was agreement signed to lessen the armament that all these nuclear powers have, specifically the then Soviet Union and the United States of America. So I think the International Atomic Energy Association, I think that's the appropriate name, those inspectors, they know who has what. 
Well, I hope they do, because I believe that if, we, if a nuclear war starts between the United States and Russia, Vladimir Putin, you and me, and every other person that faces Earth will be horrified by what the Americans drag out. They've been working on it since 1960. So uh, what I'm saying is that this morning you started out saying, you know, what's good about Newfoundland? Well, Patty, you know what's good about Newfoundland? We're not the United States. And thanks be to God for that. <laughs> I appreciate the time, Brian. Thanks for the call. Okay. Take care. Bye. All right, bye-bye. We'll get another one for the break. Well, that'll be on line number two. Maureen, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Doing well, thanks. How about you? Oh, I'm doing good, thanks. Um, I'm calling from Tilting on Fogo Island. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I just wanted to um, let you know that we came off of a four-day weekend. <clears throat> we had a very successful sailor tilting, we call it. It's a, it's a four-day celebration of our Irish heritage and culture in tilting. And uh, we had an amazing turnout. Of course, it was the first one since 2019. And um, we just wanted to say a big thank you to uh, all the participants, to all the volunteers, uh, to everyone who came. Um, I don't know if you've heard of Fela Tilting before. You probably haven't. I have not. What goes on? No. So uh, we start on Thursday evening with... Um, Readings and recitations at the slipway. We have a large slipway there, and, and that's been restored. And and that's followed by um, the official opening at St. Patrick's Club. We have uh, a shake crawl on Friday night where we had the biggest one ever. <laughs> and uh, we had Fergus O'Byrne and Jim Payne were our special guests this year. And they participated in the shake crawl, and they uh, they also put off a concert at St. Patrick's Club Hall on Saturday evening, which was amazing, amazing. Uh, that was followed by a dance, and Sunday night we finished off with Irish pub night. And during that time, we also on Friday had the official opening of our new uh, Tilting Heritage Centre. Uh, which has is winds and waves, and it's going to have a new cafe. So with a lot of events taking place, a lot of expats came home, a lot of visitors. Uh, it was just an amazing, amazing weekend. We had friends from Ireland visiting. Friends from all over took part in the shake crawl. We even had them from Australia. <laughs> Fabulous. Right? Sounds so. great. It is, it is. So on behalf of the committee, uh, we just wanted to say a big, big thank you to volunteers, to participants, to everyone who helped in any, any way. I'm glad to hear it was such a great success. It sounds like a wonderful event. It is. You should come next year. I'd love to. It's been a long, long time since I've been on Fogo Island, but I'd love to get back there. Yeah, and it was also co uh, broadcast on community radio and on the World Wide Web at the same time. Cool. Yeah, it was pretty cool. Thanks for this, Maureen. I'm glad you had a good time, and I appreciate your time this morning. You too, likewise. Have a good day. Very same to you. Take care. Okay, okay. bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, someone wants to talk about masking at the hospitals, then it's the Bells with Balls event with Bonnie and Barbie right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Uh, let's go to line number three. Caller, you're on the air. Hi. Uh, yeah, I just wanted uh, to... Uh, Quote message out there. Uh, 
before uh, before security can tell uh, patients and people coming into hospitals to put on a mask and put their sanitizer on, because I do believe right now the masks are still mandatory in hospitals. In healthcare settings, yeah, I went to a uh, a family doctor clinic last week, and everyone was asked to mask up. Yep, that's right. Yep. So before there's security, could be asking patients to mask up. Maybe they should have followed their own advice and mask up themselves and put their hand sanitizer on as well. That's all I'm going to say. You have a great day. Uh, okay, you too. Bye bye. Uh, I don't know the clinic I went to. The doctor and the receptionist—they were wearing them. I, I haven't been to the hospital in quite some time. Uh, knock on wood. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Bonnie Morgan and Barbie King. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? I'm doing well. How about you? Hi there. Good morning. Hi. What's happening? Tell us about the event. Well. We're having our 2022 Ovarian Cancer Symposium, and we have it named Strive, Thrive, Survive. And it's spelled with balls, NL, in partnership with MUN. And it's being held uh, this Saturday, uh, Patty, uh, Saturday, September 24th, at the Memorial University Faculty of Medicine from 9 till 3. And so what's an effort? I know what Bells with Balls is all about, but tell us the, about the origin of the event and what you're trying to achieve. Well, we, this is our, this is, Bells with Balls raises money for ovarian cancer research and education in Newfoundland. And this is our fifth year having an exposium that's open to the general public as well as health professionals and students. And we're just trying to promote awareness of ovarian cancer and, um, you know, discuss ovarian cancer in general, because we really want to get the word out about this, this disease. What do people need to know about the prevalence and the treatment and the research ongoing? What can you tell us? Well, ovarian cancer, uh, a few things about ovarian cancer to note is that a pap test doesn't detect ovarian cancer. A lot of women think that a pap test would, but it doesn't cover ovarian cancer at all. Uh, most ovarian cancers start in the fallopian tubes, not in the ovaries. Um, it's diagnosed often at a late stage because there is, no, there is no screening test for ovarian cancer like there is for other cancers. So what, what they're doing here at MUN is they're doing genetic, uh, genetic research. And 25% of women with ovarian cancer are genetically predisposed, predisposed to it. So if we can find the cancers before it spreads, uh, it makes it more treatable. And what happens at the event? What kind of time am I going to have? Okay. Well, the event is from 9 to 3, and it's a cost of $25, which includes your lunch, and parking is free. So we have uh, presentations by specialist doctors and other professionals in the ovarian cancer field. Some of the topics are going to include uh, coping with cancer treatment, promoting sexual wellness in ovarian cancer, the importance of sleep for optimal health, and, of course, new research breakthroughs, which will help in prevention. Sounds great. Where is it? When is it? How much is it? It's at uh, Memorial University Faculty of Medicine, Saturday, September 24th from 9 to 3. The cost is $25. It includes a lunch, and your parking is free. And you can register online um, at Bells with Balls or by calling Memorial University. Um, can I give the number online? You sure can. At 864-3358. Uh, or you can actually register at the door. Why are you two involved? Uh, well, I'm involved, Patty, because I was diagnosed with ovarian cancer, uh, third stage, third grade in 2010. 
And since that time, I've had um, four recurrences. I'm going through one currently at this time. And, of course, we started off the uh, Bells with Balls, and my sister is involved because of me. And uh, our other co-chair, Alana Walsh Giovannini, is involved because her mother uh, had ovarian cancer and passed away with it after a very brief, brief um, illness. And, and all the girls, all the ladies on our committee are fully volunteer. Uh, we work hard <laughs> at this, trying to raise awareness uh, and money for the research and education in Newfoundland and Labrador. And so far, we've raised almost $400,000. Bravo. I mean, it's become so difficult. You know what? It's always been difficult to try to raise awareness and funds for one charity, one initiative for another. And then the pandemic hit. And, you know, people were bemoaning the fact that we couldn't get together as much as we did in the past. And that, you know, going to some of these events, I was on the charity circuit for a long, long time. But all of a sudden, then we did it virtually. And so as opposed to having to be in town to go or one community or another, you could just attend online as part of the Zoom or one of these digital opportunities to join in. It kind of changed the way we can approach these things. So are you expanding it for folks who'd like to just, you know, have a digital drop-in to see what's going on, to be part of the event, albeit not in the room? Yeah, yeah. It, is, it, it is virtual besides being in person. And with the pending storm now this weekend, we may have to go totally virtual. We're going to make a decision uh, on that by this late this afternoon or tomorrow morning. Or tomorrow morning. It's incredible but, how expanding it through, you know, whether it be Facebook Live or whatever people do, more and more people were able to attend and to get the awareness campaign information than ever before. So it's been a double-edged sword. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, good luck with this edition of Bells with Balls. Anything else either would, uh, either of you would like to say before we say goodbye? Uh, no, we just want to thank you, Patty, you and VOCM, for uh, helping us promote this and uh, getting the awareness out there about ovarian cancer. Happy to do it. Good luck. Nice speaking with you. Thanks, Patty. All thanks, right. Patty. You're welcome, Bonnie. Bye. Bonnie Morgan, Barbie King, Bells with Balls. Perfect. All right, uh, let's take a break for the news. When we come back, plenty of time to speak with you on the topic of your choosing. Do not go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to the program. Join us online number one is Dr. Holly Echegary. She's an associate professor of clinical epidemiology, academic patient engagement lead at the Faculty of Medicine at Munn, and of course at the Craig L. Dobbins Center for Genetics. Who? And Dr. Echegary joins us online one. Good morning, Doctor. You're on the air. Well, thank you so much. For future reference, we should just say Holly is joining us. A lot easier, right? Ha, I don't <laughs> mind the intros. Well, they're certainly de deserved and due given the role that you play in the province. So you're working on a national research study on hereditary cancer with, of course, a specific focus with your work on Newfoundland and Labrador. What are you doing? Yeah, well, thanks so much for the opportunity. Um, yeah, so I'm involved with several researchers here, uh, Dr. Jane Green, Dr. Lisa Dawson, Dr. Sevtep Savas, all well-known and, and uh, people doing research here in this province for a long time. This is a national study. It's a team grant. So I'm really delighted that Newfoundland and Labrador is a part of it. The other provinces are Ontario and B.C. And when the call came out, this is funded by the Canadian Institutes of Health Research, and they're quite a big uh, funder of health research in Canada. They're looking to study the economic and psychosocial impact of rare conditions. And so we have an interest in hereditary cancers. We know that matters here in this province. We have hundreds of individuals who are impacted by hereditary cancer syndromes here in Newfoundland Labrador. So that's the focus of our team. 
and indeed the teens in Ontario and BC as well. So what we want to do is talk to people um, who have lived experience of these hereditary cancer syndromes because let's face it, how can we know what the economic or financial burden or psychosocial burdens of these hereditary syndromes are unless we talk to people who live with them. So that's really where we're coming from to begin to talk to people to better understand what the impacts of these hereditary conditions are. Because it's a national project, we'll be very lucky in that we'll be able to compare across provinces and maybe learn from each other with any luck in terms of what is what is working, for example, for these families. I saw different examples of those types of cancers. Let me ask you this question first. Is there a difference between a hereditary cancer and an inherited cancer? One would have a mutated gene, which makes it quite likely you're going to get the, whether it be prostate or colon or breast cancer. So is there a difference between the two, or do you just face a higher likelihood of getting that cancer if you have a family history? Yeah, I mean, I think I think both are true. I think you may well have a have a higher uh, likelihood if you have a family history. But when we talk about hereditary cancer syndromes or the heredi- inherited cancers, means the same things really. Hereditary okay. cancer, inherited. There really is a very specific, as you say, mutation or genetic alteration that confers that increased risk. And we do have genetic testing available for many of these hereditary cancer syndromes, so people can be tested for this very specific mutation or alteration. If you're found to carry it, that means that, yes, indeed, you will then have a, um, a high risk of developing cancer. And the thing with these hereditary cancer syndromes and the reason I think that the funder quite rightly is interested in studying them and better understanding them a little more is that it requires lifelong surveillance and follow-up because the risk of cancer is higher across multiple organs. So, for example, in this study, we're going to focus on two particular hereditary cancer syndromes. One is Lynch syndrome. The other is hereditary breast ovarian cancer syndrome, uh, in particular caused by BRCA1 and BRCA2 alterations. So those two syndromes confer an increased risk of, um, you know, breast cancer, ovarian cancer, colon cancer, pancreatic cancer, prostate cancer for men, etc., depending on the syndrome. So the reason we want to better understand these syndromes is that they do require lifelong follow-up and surveillance. So you can imagine, Patty, someone who lives in Labrador or Cornerbrook, et cetera, and have to travel to St. John's to see specialists for uh, their skin, their colon, uh, you know, their breasts, their ovaries, other organs. Imagine if you have to do that, uh, you know, once a year for all of those different appointments. So you can imagine how that can add up for people, right? So that's really part of the difference with these hereditary syndromes. They do confer a higher um, uh, than population average increased risk across multiple organs and often at younger ages. So one of the concerns I think many of us have in in this world who work with these patients and families is, you know, across this country, we really don't have a coordinated system of care. We really don't. You know, people get tested, they find out they carry one of these alterations, and in many respects, their ongoing care and follow-up is really left to them and their family doctors. And we know that family doctors can't be specialists in everything. It's hard to keep up on all these new genetic technologies and developments. So I think this study is really going to help us get some better information on people's 
journey through the system. What is it like to access care and follow up and coordination of your appointments and all of these specialists you have to see? Is it burdensome? Is it working? Do you have a sense of control? Some patient partners tell us that they they appreciate being identified because that allows them to get this ongoing follow-up and so on. So we're really hoping ultimately at the end of the day we can identify, you know, what's working for these families and patients, what isn't, compare across our teams with the other two provinces, and amongst us all, I think, I hope, have a pretty good picture, uh, very much informed by patients themselves and what's working, what isn't, etc. All with the hope, of course, of making things better. It's what you always hope to do. It always amazes me how disjointed healthcare is across the country, whether it be processes and prevention campaigns or accreditation. It's just it's so unnecessary, and it just adds to the burden on the system, I would suggest. Uh, when you talk about economic implications, is that simply time away from work because of diagnosis or recovery from surgery or treatment or what have you? Is that what we're getting at there? Definitely part of it. I mean, part of the answer to that is uh, we need to talk to the people who have the lived experience of this, first of all, to tell us what are the economic impacts. I think we don't know. But that was definitely a part of it. So if you take someone, so we've already done two or three interviews here in Newfoundland. And let me just say uh, thank you to those folks who have already touched base with us. We so appreciate hearing your stories. Um, You know, they've already told us, for example, if you are a person who is lucky enough to have a full-time job and have annual leave, they need to think about, okay, I have 15 days of annual leave or however many days one gets. I need to, I'm going to have to travel to St. John's uh, eight different times for my appointments, for my uh, colonoscopies, etc., whatever the screening is. Uh, I'm going to need to stay in St. John's one of those nights, two of those nights, etc. So they have to plan. Now, we're going to go on a vacation this year, but I need to save seven of my days for my appointments. So right away, it has an impact on their vacation plans, right, for example. Mm -hmm. It has an impact on uh, if they're having particular tests, such as a colonoscopy, and they can't drive, then a family member has to come with them. Uh, That person is having meals. You know, you you need to stay somewhere, et cetera. So it's all of the very, what we call direct economic impacts, which will be the things we're talking about. But the more indirect impacts might very well be, does someone choose to work part-time versus full-time? Do they retire early? Uh, Do they make specific education choices because of the risks they carry or not? And then more broadly in other areas of your life, how does it impact your relationships with others, your sense of self, your child-rearing decisions or bearing decisions, rather, uh, et cetera? So uh, worry, anxiety, stress, and, of course, what are the positive things? As I said, you know, patient partners who are working with us on this project, we have six of them, uh, I'm delighted, across the country, two here in New land Labrador, um, you know, they remind us, don't forget, there are some positive things as well uh, about being identified um, um, as carrying one of these alterations, as I said, being able to access things. So we want to explore all those impacts, direct and indirect, and really whatever folks have to tell us. I suspect we're going to hear things we haven't thought about, quite frankly, and that's the great, great thing about talking directly with patients, right, and families. Uh, Economic impact is probably going to be very similar across the country. Now, if you're traveling to St. John's for treatment, not everyone will be lucky enough to have friends or family to stay with or a place at Daffodil Place or Ronald McDonald House, for instance. So you'll hear very varied stories, I would imagine. But on the genetic front, we're 
long told that we have a unique gene pool here in this province. You know, some of the great genetic work that goes unrecognized, unfortunately, you know, like recognizing the gene mutation that predisposed people to arthrogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy that was discovered here by genetic researchers. With the unique gene pool here, will there be a complication given the Newfoundland Labrador work, given our unique gene pool and some of the predispositions that we suffer from in this province versus other parts of the country which would have a different gene makeup in their population? Or does that even factor into the final compilation of the data? That's a really good question. I mean, off the top of my head, I would say I don't know that it will matter to this particular study because this is not a study where we're trying to look for uh, new genes. Uh, I don't work at that level. I'm very much a health services researcher, psychosocial researcher. So for this particular study, I'm not sure it will matter horribly. It's funny that you mentioned the ARVC. I've also done some work with those families and I work with Kathy Hodgkins and, of course, and Terry Lynn Young, who do a lot of that work. Um, it's funny enough, when we wrote this grant application for the hereditary cancer, we had already done some work in ARVC. We had spoken with some of those patients and families, and my thanks to them, if any are listening, from several years ago. They, in fact, talked to us um, spontaneously. We didn't even ask the question about the economic burdens of that condition. So in that condition, for example, because uh, men, young men in particular, often die very young, um, the fathers uh, of the families, particularly years ago uh, where, you know, they might have been the breadwinners, uh, you know, participants told us about their mom, you know, having to take an extra job and they themselves in high school having to take an extra job and so on. So I don't know that the gene pool itself will make a difference, but in that condition, for example, um, because it happened to be the case that the dads or the brothers were often the main breadwinner of the family, I know, don't know that that's the case today anymore in our current uh, 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 year and time, uh, but back then when it certainly seemed to be, according to what participants told us, you really did see an impact. We really heard about that from participants. So I'm really pleased that that work, we wrote about it in our grant application, and reviewers actually commented. Uh, they liked the fact that we had already done some work. So I think it's already helped us be successful in this uh, application. So hopefully it will inform things going forward, and we'll be keeping that in mind to compare it, right? If people are only aware of the genetic research and the achievements or the work that's been peer-reviewed, and research around the world, uh, uh, lessons learned from genetic research in this province, it's staggering. I remember interviewing Dr. Terry Lynn Young upon the uh, discovery of that mutated gene and uh, Dr. Bridget Fernandez, for instance. It's really remarkable what goes on here. So, I, I mean, some for some people, this conversation is probably uh, a little bit in outer space because, I mean, I don't know anything about these things. I, I, I like to speak to people who do because I find it to be fascinating. But if anyone wants to be involved in your work at this time with the topics we've discussed, what do they need to do? Sure, and I'll, I'll pass that along. I'll just say quickly, by the way, I think sometimes we as researchers, and I'm really guilty of it, we don't do a good job, by the way, of sharing the word about our work. I just said to Dave before I came on with you, Dave said, you know, please keep us in mind. If you're doing this sort of work, we're happy to help share it. And I said, I hate going on the radio. So I think we don't we do not do a good job, by the way, sometimes of sharing our work more widely. I'm trying to get better at that, so thanks for helping me do that. So, but for this particular study, what I'm going to say is we don't have a website per se. I do have uh, a study poster or an ad I'm happy to share, and uh, if, if you guys want to share that in any way, you certainly can. But we do have a great research assistant on this project. Her name is Brooklyn, Brooklyn Sparks. She's with Eastern Health. And uh, so Brooklyn can be reached at 777 mm -hmm. 9066 
Okay. And her email is really quite easy as well. It's simply her name, brooklyn.sparks. Is that uh, S-P-R-K-E-S? That's right. Yep. Okay. All lowercase. Brooklyn.sparks at easternhealth.ca. Okay. So Brooklyn is helping to coordinate uh, information or inquiries about the study. And I'm also happy, by the way, for people to contact me directly. I'm much more accessible by email. Uh, my name is a little harder to spell than Brooklyn's, but I'm happy to do it. <laughs> okay. it's, just, it's just my full name, Holly.Echigary. Which, of course, is E-T-C-H-E-G-A-R-Y. Exactly. Thank you. Yep, Holly.Echigary at med dot excellent i will have that information on hand for anyone who reaches out to me looking to connect with either you or brooklyn really appreciate the time this is fascinating stuff thank you so much i really appreciate your time i'm sure we'll i'm sure we'll talk again i'm happy to share the results of this study as i said we don't do it well so i'm happy to, to touch base at a future time i look forward to it Thanks so much. Take care. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. It's Dr. Holly Echegary uh, talking about the research being done nationally and, of course, involving, obviously, Newfoundland and Labrador about hereditary cancers. Again, if you'd like to reach out to Dr. Echegary directly, you could do so via email. It's holly, H-O-L-L-Y, dot Echegary, which, of course, is E-T-C-H-E-G-A-R-Y, at med dot mon dot ca or the research assistance is brooklyn is brooklyn uh, sparks her phone number is 777-9066 or you can reach her via email once again it's brooklyn dot sparks at easternhealth.ca let's go ahead and take a break when we come back we're speaking with you about whatever's on your mind don't go away uh, welcome back to the program again nobody really knows exactly what Hurricane Fiona at whatever category or the remnants of what it means for this province come Friday into Saturday, Sunday into Monday. But the weather statement from Environment Canada is certainly worded a little bit more forcefully than it was a couple of days ago. So obviously the communities on that part of the, in that part of the province are doing their level best to prepare for what would be the wind and the water damage. And of course the potential for power outages. There's actually a power outage likelihood map that's been distributed that you might want to check out yourself. But if it tracks the way it's tracking, not only would we have a distinct impact on the southwest coast, the Great Northern Peninsula, other parts of the south coast on the island, but also included is through across the Gulf and into North Sydney. So again, when we talk about things like food security, we only have people say, and the evaluation has been done, that there's only around seven days worth of supplies on the island. That's it. What happens if there is some significant damage on the other side of the Gulf that limits the ability for Marine Atlantic to bring in their foodstuffs across the Gulf, because whether it be wharf damage or whatever? I don't know what's going to happen. Hopefully Fiona uh, fizzles out before she causes a major problem. But those types of conversations are important. That will lead people today into Friday to be buying what they need. And absolutely, emergency preparedness is important not only for municipalities in the province and the federal government, but for individuals and their families or whatever household you live in. Inside that envelope, though, what we do see all the time is that people who have the wherewithal, they'll stock up. And they'll stock up. You know, the recommendation is to have 72 hours worth of supplies because I guess that's what people realize or think is the potential for an average prolonged outage of power. And please do exactly what you need to do to protect yourself and your family. But that only, that only happens if people have the resources, right? So I don't know what people's pay periods look like and when you get your next check. 
But it's also, I think, important to recognize that fact when we make our way to the grocery store to prepare for this storm or any other storm or the pending winter storms for this coming season here in the province. But not everyone can do it. So just kind of factor that in maybe when you go to shop in preparedness because everyone should do what they have to do. And the 72 hour is an average and a recommendation. But we, all, we see it all the time. People will do what they call either panic buy or, you know, the hoarding of some goods because you have the money and lucky if you do indeed have the resources. But I think it just heightens and hopefully furthers the conversation about the issue regarding food security in the province. Some people think I probably talk about food too much. But when we worry about all kinds of stuff associated with inflation and cost of living and affordability issues, there's some things that we can get away with not buying today. But that does not include food. So it's not only price point at the shop, but it's also just how reliant we are on shipping it across the Gulf. I don't know OceanX brings uh, in a variety of goods uh, themselves. But Marine Atlantic does an awful lot of this work. We know that to be true. And, of course, it's quite costly. We could talk about that facet of Marine Atlantic. But, you know, the province can talk about doubling food production all they like. And the offering of an additional 65,000 hectares of land for agricultural purposes, whether it be from root vegetables all the way to cattle. It's taken them forever and a day to clear the land to make it uh, proper and prepared for an agricultural purpose. But are we really doing what we need to do in a timely fashion to be more, more food secure? And again, it might be beating a dead horse when I talk about greenhouses and what have you. But more has to be done and sooner. You know, just look at the most recent evaluation of the people, the numbers of people, families and children who live in a food insecure household in this province. It's madness. Sheer madness in modern day Canada in 2022. So hopefully the storm does not have a big impact on those types of matters, but it might. And then maybe, just maybe, the conversation, whether it be led, led by people who know more about it than I do, like the Josh Smees of the world at Food First, and other organizations, and Dan Rubin, and others who talk about these matters, it's part of their day-to-day -day operations, things that they're focused on and passionate about. So we'll see what the storm brings, but the Weather Canada statement today certainly feels and reads a lot different than it did a couple of days ago. All right, let's take a break for the 11.30 newscast. When we come back, still plenty of time to talk about whatever. If it's a topic you haven't heard brought up, bring it up. If you'd like to expand on something you've heard, do that, but you can do it right after this. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back. Uh, let's go to line number one. Shannon, you're on the air. Hi, how are you? Doing great. You? Uh, I've had better days. What's happening? <laughs> um, well, um, the fire that happened Saturday on Shea Heights, um, my unit was attached to the one that burned down. Um, and nobody uh, Newfoundland Labrador it's a Newfoundland Labrador housing unit and their main focus is trying to get it fixed up as fast as they can when it's not livable so they could put myself and my three children back there so during this process um, the, the day of the fire it was 2.28 my neighbor came and knocked on our door to get us out we were unaware that this was happening if it wasn't for uh, Mr. Joey Husk God love his heart he saved our lives um, and I want to say a huge thank you to him uh, but um, it came 10 o'clock in the night, and we got a phone call saying that we did not have a place to stay. It was myself, my three children, our puppy, our cat, and she just had nine kittens, so they were only three weeks old. And we, 
we had nowhere to go. We couldn't. We weren't allowed back in our house. The power box was ripped off the house, which is still ripped off the house. And so, it, thankfully, that one of my neighbours took us in. But I mean, that's a lot to put on the side of a person. Uh, uh, since then, now they've been booking our hotel room. Now we've been at two hotels, and they're booking them per day. So every day. I had to wake up and I had to fill up the car again. So me and my children have been living out of the car for the past three days. It has been so emotional. And if it wasn't for our com- my community of feelings, I would not get any support. Shannon, uh, you take a deep breath. I know it must be a really stressful time for you and your children. You say people have been booking your hotel rooms. Who's Who's doing that? Newfoundland and Labrador Housing. Okay. They're doing it per day. It's only one night day. So every day I have to get up and I have to pack up the room. Okay, and just so I understand what's going on here, for the emergency housing, so yeah. the, are you telling me that they book the hotel room day by day and you don't know until the next day what's going to become yeah. of you for that night? But yeah. is, there a, is there an expiration date where that housing support runs out? I don't know. I don't know. Our house is unlivable too. Our house isn't fit to live in. And they're trying to put us back. <laughs> My two boys have asthma. They can't even go in that side of the house and they can't breathe. Uh, this because of smoke damage, I'm assuming? It's smoke, it's smoke, water, and fire damage. They, they think the fire started in the basement because there's a river that runs. There was a river that ran and there, uh, a guy just kept cutting the trees down and he reverted the river. And now the river flows underneath our home. So they have water pumps in the basement. And nobody knows how the fire started yet. And that's the only thing that I could possibly see it coming. Like, it came from that that, that underneath where there are two kind of thing, like underneath the porch in the basement. Mm -hmm. And they went in the basement yesterday. And that's when they were supposed to um, repair the damages. And they went in and it came out and they left. And they won't answer any of my questions. So I, I, I'm in less than the dark with everybody else. And this, it, the worst thing is we're left in the dark living in a car until we get to notify where we're going next. Have you asked them uh, as I, to I, why? I it's, I'm sorry, go ahead. I begged them to, uh, if they can extend it just so we can relax for a little bit. I, I don't understand any of it. How are the children? <laughs> I'm trying so hard to put some normalcy in their day, but uh, yeah, it, you just, it's it's paying a toll on all, <laughs> unfortunately. How, how old are they? My son is 16, my daughter's 14, and my youngest is 6. <sighs> okay, I don't know why they do it the way they do. It seems interesting to me that they wouldn't be able to book a hotel room, tell you that you have seven nights as, so at least you can catch your breath and yes. you know make plans yes. for what's coming next. Is there the requirement for... Pardon? That's all I would love to have. It's just... I understand. Uh, is there some sort of inspection that has to take place before they tell you you have to move back in? Because if it's not power, safe... The power box itself is ripped off the house. So Newfoundland Labrador house, a, new, a Newfoundland Labrador like power has to go and replace the box if they're going to put a new box back onto the house. They have to reinstate power. Then they have to do something with tenants insurance. This is what the engineer was telling me. He's like, there's, he's like, even if that house was livable, which it isn't, he's like, there's no way you'll be able to, they'll be able to get all this done in in, in even 24 hours. He said, there's no way to be able to get this done this week. <laughs> but yet, they're still like, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't make sense. 
Okay, so have you thought of turning to some of the other support agencies out there, like uh, the Red Cross or the Salvation Army, to see if there's something they can step in and help you while you're waiting for the home to be put back in livable uh, shape? Uh, no, because it's going through Newfoundland Labrador Housing, and they just keep it's just being directed back there because it was their home. Yeah, but I would take that step anyway and just see, because they might be able to give you something that will put your mind at ease. So they're good groups, and they do good work, like they're already preparing for what the storm might bring this weekend. So it might not be the be-all and end-all or a perfect solution, but maybe they'll be able to tell you that they can do something for you, because that's something. one of the main roles while they're there. So I would try both and just see if they can offer any sort of uh, solution or uh, advice or whatever the case may be, because I wouldn't know what to do to put you in a better place but try those two if you don't have any luck get back in touch with us and i'll go back to the drawing board and try to figure out something to help you and your children thank you so much okay so make those calls and let me know what happens i will my darling thank okay, you okay shannon take care you too all righty yeah i mean being displaced because of something like fire in the home is obviously traumatizing enough but then it's the unknown of what next because, you know, I, there's a tight-knit community in Shea Heights, and they look out for their own, and that's a, a nice feature of that neighborhood, like many other neighborhoods, wherever you may live. But it's the, the, uh, the gray area of not knowing. I mean, so you start off with a level of stress, which must be monumental, given the fact you were burnt out of your home, and it happened to have a neighbor who was quick enough to knock to make you aware of the fire. And as Shannon pointed out, she says that Mr. Husk saved her life and her children's lives. So that's we'll see what's next for them. We'll try to help them if we can. Uh, regarding Marine Atlantic and whatever's coming our way this weekend, they have indeed added a couple of crossings. So for people that want to get out of here, and or you know because you had scheduled travel out so and maybe there will be additional foodstuffs brought over on this added crossing that much it might alleviate some of the possibility of some shortages or fairly bare or barren shelves so from north sydney to argentia it's departing it's today at 5 30 be making its way over from north sydney to argentia and then from argentia back to north sydney will it be happening tomorrow at five o'clock so if you have any questions about the new crossings like the book passage you can go to marine atlantic they've put out a potential weather impact statement themselves but it's pretty simple email or pardon me website it's just marineatlantic.ca i guess there would be many people concerned with what might be happening on that front okay sir check this out here oh a listener is asking whether or not she can find a place to re-listen to or have a copy of a conversation that we just had with uh Dr. Holly Echegary, of course, they're doing a national study on hereditary cancers, and the short answer is yes. At some point later this afternoon, the entirety of the show will be posted on our website at vocm.com. You can hear it there, and you can actually uh, snatch a copy of it right there yourself. So that'll be up this afternoon on our SoundCloud at vocm.com. Final break of the morning. When we come back, still time to speak with you. Topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Uh, welcome back to the program. So I'll just pose an interesting question uh, via email. Once again, we're open line at vocm.com. Of course, the fall portion of the recreational food fishery was scheduled to kick off this Friday the 24th, or this Saturday the 24th, pardon me. Uh, the emailer is asking whether or not the DFO is going to extend the season based on the incoming and pending weather. Good question. Because we know the recommendation has long been, if it's unsafe, please don't take the chance. The fishery in the fall is supposed to extend from the 24th of September to the 2nd of October. So that's a good question. 
Defo hasn't proven to be very nimble on that kind of stuff. You know, there's been pleas coming from the commercial uh, side of the fishery where, whether it be because of sea ice or weather conditions where you're unable to get a start on the season. Some of the seasons for various species are really quite tight, and it has been a struggle, we'll say, to get any move on that front. Basically, it really feels sometimes like we're forcing people to go out in unsafe conditions. But, of course, in the recreational food fishery, many of you, Given what we talk about all the time with the price of groceries and what have you, nothing like the cost of going out and jigging a few cod to put in the freezer to have for a few meals over the course of the fall and the winter. But it's a good question, Mary, and I don't know, but we can find out whether or not they're going to have a look at this because quite likely, regardless of the track of the storm, it won't be fit for people to go out in smaller crafts or even some of the bigger boats uh, if the storm is at all as windy as it uh, uh, proposes to be or it possibly will be anyway so that's one uh someone was chiming in of course about the lack of coverage or lack of conversation on this program about the passing of the queen well that's kind of up to you i mean i i brought it up repeatedly and whether it be about her life and times or other issues we're happy to talk about it in the future of the monarchy i would imagine it's appropriate to broach that topic now that we are where we are it's not like it's brand new it's been brewing for years and years in this country with people wondering about the relevance and our relationship with the monarchy you know, whether it be about the simple associated costs or whether it be about this day and age as a member of the Commonwealth and a hereditary uh, monarchical system that the British employ and in many people adore. But we can have that. But on that front, there are still opportunities for commemoration of the Queen's life and times, especially her 70 years on the throne. Government House here in the city of St. John's is open to the public. There's a series of events uh, that are on tap to mark the passing of the sovereign. So you can go to Government House this evening from 6.30 to 8.30 p.m for whatever they have on tap. And of course, there likely will be ongoing commemorations, whether it be at Government House and other places, over the next number of days, possibly weeks. And I don't know when it's going to be the formal coronation, but of course, it's automatic that Charles was now king immediately upon the passing of Queen Elizabeth II. But yeah, I don't know if we talk about it enough or too much, but a lot of that has to go back to your input which makes the show go, right? It's not me, it's you. When you bring up the topics and offer your perspective, whether it be a welcomed opinion or not, it's fine by me. It might not be for some listeners, but it's absolutely fine by me. And someone wants me to reiterate how to get in touch with Dr. Holly Etchegary or her research assistant to be involved in this national uh, examination of economic and personal impact. If uh, diagnosis of hereditary cancer, whether it be prostate or colon or breasts or pancreatic or otherwise, yes, we have that information. The research assistant, which uh, Dr. Etchegary says might be the go-to point of contact, her name is Brooklyn Sparks. You can just call her. The number is 777-9066. Or you can send her an email. So it's brooklyn.sparks at easternhealth.ca. Or Dr. Etchegary herself is available via email at holly.etchegary at mon dot uh, at med pardon me dot mon dot ca. So once again, it's holly.etchegary at med dot mon dot ca. The type of, I, I don't know if people would appreciate more of those types of conversations about genetic research, but there has been extraordinary work done at the genetic research uh, facility and faculty here in the province. Just amazing. 
So we mentioned a couple of ARVC and other genes that have been identified. And the fact that we have such unique, I guess unique is the right word, gene pool, it makes for ample opportunity for some of those types of genetic research projects to take place. I mentioned a couple of them, and of course there are many genetic researchers. I'm not trying to alienate one person or another because I don't know them all. But between uh, Dr. Terry Lynn O'Neill, just amazing person, and then uh, I mentioned Bridget Fernandez. I had the opportunity to speak with both of those women over the years. It's, of course, their mental aptitude, mental capacity, and understanding of the topic is certainly vastly different than mine. I don't know about yours. But it does make for fascinating conversations about what we've learned about the population, our predisposition to various things, including ARVC, and some issues that related to uh, other ailments and diseases in this province. Some of it is based on our own behaviors, but some of it is absolutely based on our genetic makeup. So we can have uh, more of those types of conversations if you're so inclined. Also, some pushback when I mentioned things regarding pandemic border measures that are currently in place, set to expire on the 30th of, 30th of September. You know, of course, some people grossly exaggerate what the impact has been on individuals and or on the economy. You know, to be told that the economy has been devastated by some of these measures, whether it be random testing and otherwise, it's hard to believe anything's been irreparably damaged or destroyed or ruined. But it has been frustrating. There's no question about that. The comment that got the pushback was, I think we long should have been talking about the need or the the mandatory self-isolation for 14 days for unvaccinated travelers because the obvious is right there in front of us. I can only speak in any certain terms based on my own personal experience, but when I traveled, as per the current definition of fully vaccinated, I had the primary series plus a booster, and until those formal definitions change uh, associated with any restrictions or mandates, I don't know why people get so wound up, but... So I had the primary series of two shots and the one booster. I traveled, I returned, and a few days later, I tested positive. And we all know folks who are vaccinated can indeed contract the virus and can indeed spread it. Different levels of severity, of course, with the illness itself and or transmission or the ability to uh, contract it in the first place. But, you know, if it didn't, if, if as a vaccinated traveler, I was able to catch it, and thankfully, and hopefully, I don't think I spread it to anybody else. But the same thing, I know the risk might be slightly different for the unvaccinated, but the honor system, even though I'm, look, let's be honest. Some returning travelers, even though it was mandated, the 14-day quarantine, the numbers of people and the levels of frustration with anything related to government measures regarding the pandemic, you know full well. Some people who were uh, unvaccinated, testing positive or not, they went upon their merry way. Now, some people may indeed have said, okay, so here's the rules or regulations that are put forward, and to try to protect my family, my friends, and the general public, I'll do what I need to do, because you can be asymptomatic for quite a long time. Now, the risk of asymptomatic transmission, of course, was misunderstood in the beginning, and we're getting to know a little bit more about it now. But you wonder what has happened in the schools already this year. We haven't heard any update based on the rates of absenteeism or the reasons why. And, you know, people were told, families were told, if you've got an allergic, uh, uh, something related to uh, an allergy and the sniffles or a cough because you had a cold, you can go to school, right? And of course you can. 
But if we are not doing things like uh, the proactive provision of rapid antigen testing to be done at home and being honest with a checklist that the family can engage in each morning before they head off to school, and we don't know what absenteeism means for them to, whether it be go to a hybrid model or to go back to learning at home, which we can only hope does not happen. The education system and schools, as they say, last to close, first to open. And with the absolutely real phenomenon of learning loss that so many students have endured over the last few years, we can only hope whether it be based on precautions that individuals or families take, that the children are in school or the young adults as well are in school in the K-12 system. And, of course, pre-K, which is launching in some five schools. The application process is ongoing, and we'll see how that works. I think it's a great idea. But if we'll get an update on what's happening in the schools regarding absenteeism, so and maybe even, I guess, the starting point there is we need to understand what that means, what the threshold is before governments or public health or the district makes any additional decisions, whether it be as fundamental as masking or anything else, because we don't know. It's all been very gray. It has a bit of a feeling of hoping for the best, which I guess is, is part of navigating all the unknowns, but we'll see what the fall brings. But there's a couple of thoughts before we get to the end of the program. Once again, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. You can follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. But big thanks to all the callers today and a Big thank you to those of you planning on calling tomorrow, which we will indeed pick up this conversation in the morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.